Blog Talk Radio. An injured quarterback returns to the playing field. A four-star shooting guard does not qualify. And a visit with our friend, the Fish. All that and more tonight on BAMS Radio, a member of the Bama Sports Radio family. Good evening. Welcome to the show. I'm your co-host, Kerry Clark of BamaMag.com, joined as always by Drew DeArmond of ESPN 97.7 The Zone in Huntsville, and our good friend and producer, Thomas Watts of Touchdown Alabama Magazine. He's at the Mobile Studio and speaking of Thomas Watts, let's pay some bills. Absolutely, guys. Uh, we've done this promo a couple of times, but we're starting it over again with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is both a website and an app that you use on your phone that aggregates ticket prices. Uh, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I used it to go to the Astros game a few weeks ago. And, you know, moving forward, if you want to get a game, go to a Bama game over the weekend, jump on the SeatGeek app. Uh, this week only, use promo code BAMA in the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. To redeem your promo code, just download it and enter the promo code BAMA. SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo, ba- promo code BAMA today. The SeatGeek app is your ticket to BAMA football. Quick spot. We sold stuff. All right, I'm uh, back to uh, live radio where we talk sports. And, uh, of course, you know, let me bring in Drew DeArmond. Drew, uh, I'm going to read a couple of tweets that just came out from basketball signee for this class, Kobe Eubanks. Part one, I was not accepted to school, was not able to enroll. I want to thank Coach Johnson and staff and Roll Tide family for everything. To be clear, I was not ruled ineligible or as a non-qualifier by the NCAA. My status is pending, and I've not been cleared as yet. That makes it sound like the UA didn't accept him, Drew. Yeah, I mean, uh, that may very well be what happened. Uh, I was, you know, we, we had heard uh, via Cecil Hurt uh, that uh, there had been some, a couple of classes that he needed to pass and that he was waiting on NCAA clearance. But it also goes to show you the NCAA is kind of cracking down on these prep schools and what they're accepting from them. Uh, and so I guess maybe that's kind of what happened with Kobe Eubanks. There was probably some murkiness there with, uh, you know, what he took. I mean, he and remember, he, he's in this situation because he didn't qualify to get into Baylor as well. And so uh, his academic situation is uh, shaky at best. Uh, you hate it. I mean, you know, you, I think a lot of people were wondering if Alabama might try to get him eligible by uh, January uh, for the second semester, but that doesn't look like it's going to be possible. In all blatant honesty, I think the young kid is probably headed to uh, to junior college. That's possible, but another tweet he had just before those others, he says, the story is out. I will not be attending the University of Alabama due to not being cleared by the NCAA in time for the start of school at Alabama. 
So he kind of contradicts himself a little bit. I, I understand the junior college thing. That's quite possible. But let's hark him back to Kennedy Winston, who enrolled midway through his freshman year. And I don't, I don't think we should close the door yet. I'm going to try to get some more details tomorrow at lunch because I'm going to hear a talk from uh, Colton Houston, the director of basketball ops that was retained by Coach Johnson from Coach Grant's staff. Uh, and hopefully he'll answer that question uh, about Kobe Eubanks. So we'll, uh, I'll, I'll tweet that out if he lets me. And I don't think he'll have a problem with it if I clear it with him. So, but, you know, I, I think that it, there's still somewhat of a chance he could enroll in late December, but it doesn't sound like that's the plan. He may have more work to do. If he ends up in junior college, and he has to be re-recruited two years down the road. Yeah, and it's uh, and you know, it's unfortunate uh, with the re- commitment of Terrence Ferguson, who is headed to another school because Dallas Prime Prep is closing. Um, you know, yeah, I don't believe that he he hasn't had any issues with his academics, and I, I don't foresee that happening uh, with Ferguson. But you were you were hoping to team him and Eubanks up together. Uh, that doesn't look like that's going to happen. It affects this year's team uh, the most. So in the future, not really. Terrence Ferguson's already uh, tweeting at Tom Bradley, uh, who uh, junior, who or I should, uh, who uh, who's a uh, one of the best uh, uh, t- uh, post players. Uh, oh. uh, t- excuse me, Tony Bradley Jr., uh, who's one of the best post players in uh, the 2016 class, a top 50 kid, uh, yeah. someone from the state of Florida that uh, North 6'10". Carolina is. Uh, he's about six ten, two forty. He's someone from the state of uh, North Carolina uh, that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, excuse me, from the state of Florida, that North Carolina is what I was trying to say, uh, that uh, Roy Williams and that group have been very uh, hot, hard after and high on. But as I was told today by Justin Young from HoopScene.com on my show, uh, Talking Ball this afternoon, uh, North Carolina putting, has got that academic scandal, carry, and it's, it's starting to affect their recruiting a little bit uh, with Avery Johnson. Uh, and his uh, and his staff and the way as hard as they're hitting the recruiting trail, uh, they can sell a lot of playing time for big men. And uh, a lot of times, someone with a high profile, Terrence Ferguson, who commits this early, can kind of be a Pied Piper. And I right. think uh, you need to watch uh, with, with as far as with uh, Tony Bradley. Uh, you need to watch Alabama with that young guy. I think uh, as, as Justin told me of this of some of the post players that Alabama is being mentioned with. He thinks they have the strongest opportunity with that with the uh, with that six ten uh, uh, player from a uh, from uh, Florida who's a really an elite talent. And Jerry Meyer feels the same way. I read uh, the chat he had on one of the websites today, and he he feels like that Pied Piper effect could happen. And he specifically mentioned Bradley. So let's go ahead and uh, oh, one more basketball note before we change to football for the pretty much the rest of the show. Uh, the Southeastern Conference and of course University of Alabama released the remainder of the schedule tonight. Uh, the preseason schedule was already out, but if you want to go to roll.tide.com and plan which SEC games you want to go to in Tuscaloosa or support the team on the road, you can now do that. So that's all been taken care of uh, just in the last couple hours. Now, turning to football, Drew, uh, Jake Coker, after a three-practice absence, is back on the field. At least he was for the media portion of warm-ups and apparently looked fairly sharp during that portion. Nick Saban, in his post-practice remarks, said something to the effect that Jake might be out another day or two. So that tells me he didn't go the whole practice. But he did throw to receivers during the media viewing period and apparently looked at least reasonably good. Uh, Yeah, I was told that he threw the ball pretty well, but he obviously didn't do anything in practice after after, uh, the media left and you know he'll he'll likely return to full practice by the end of the week, which means he'll probably uh, 
definitely play in the scrimmage Saturday. He needs to. Uh, if he was going yeah. to miss the scrimmage, as I said, as I tweeted out earlier this week, you know, the rumors were that he might miss, might not return until Monday. And I said, if, you know, Jake Coker misses the whole week and does not uh, participate in Saturday's scrimmage, I find it hard to believe that he will be able uh, to uh, to win the quarterback job at a preseason camp and start against Wisconsin. So it's big uh, that, you know, that he's uh, got a chance to uh, come back to the scrimmage, but he needs to perform. To be bluntly honest, we're going to talk to William Redfish Barger here in a few minutes. I know Thomas is efforting to reach him, but uh, he did not, and we'll get William's take, but he did not perform that well last Saturday. No, I understand he did not. I think William might have left before – Jake's last touchdown pass to Darius Stewart, but obviously he wasn't consistent. Saban said the entire offense wasn't consistent until the last couple of series of that scrimmage. So if you left early, you probably missed most of the offensive effectiveness. Uh, and, and that's something that, fortunately, you and I will be able to observe firsthand this Saturday afternoon when we view the I'll be there. scrimmage. And, uh, All three of us. Thomas will be there. The entire BAMS crew will be there. And uh, we'll be able to give you all some extremely uh, visual hot takes next Wednesday night about what we saw. And uh, it'll be fun to assess many, many, many aspects of the game. Yes, we'll be watching the quarterbacks, but I understand Adam Griffith was inconsistent last last Saturday. I'm looking for more consistently out of him. Uh, I'm really curious to see how the secondary is shaking out. I'm starting to hear some good things about Marlon Humphrey. Uh, he's gone from injured or not participating to a starter in the dime. Not just the dime, and Alabama don't play dime every down. It's mainly just third and long. But the fact that, that it's Marlon opposite Cyrus Jones in the dime right now is, is pretty telling to me because I've always been a big fan of Marlon, and I've always thought he could contribute. So I'll be watching to see how much Marlon plays. I'll be watching the young receivers, how consistent will Rob Foster be. Uh, Cam Sims returned to practice today, but he's not going to play Saturday He's probably not going to be in any kind of uh, no, serious it, competition until like mid-October at the best. No, no, Kerry, I'll tell you this about uh, Cam Sims. He will not be back until spring. Uh, he had a knee injury to the effect of it was as serious as, as Dante Hightower's. They're not going to push him. He no, needs he, to redshirt badly. And, uh, they, and, and that, that, guys, that makes it so much more important that they got Richard Mullaney. Who, that is who why drew, that happened. Drew, in the absence of Chris Black, whose ankle was apparently worse than we thought, Mullaney is getting a lot of work in the slot right now, and he's going to play a ton against Wisconsin. Well, he will, and and I think Black uh, returned to do some practice today. So he's been out for a while. They haven't pushed him either, but uh, Mullaney was brought in because of the uh, Cam Sims situation, injury. Uh, he Cam was having the best camp of any of the wide receivers, but it was just an, he, he tore his ACL and his LCL. And uh, and uh, it's going to take him a while. He will return, but in my opinion, you will not see him going hard again until spring, and that should be the case. You don't want with that kind of serious injury, you want to give him as, as much time to heal as possible. It's great that he's out there and can do a little bit. Obviously, Anthony Jennings as well uh, with his back situation. He had back surgery. Uh, but, again, uh, that, that you know, I, I, it's, I, it's, it's exciting that he's seeing him back out there, but he's still got a long recovery. And Nick Saban said that today. Well, we have our first guest on the Big Heads Barbecue Hotline. That's uh, www.bigheadsbbq.net. And, Drew, I'll let you introduce him. Absolutely. He's a great friend of mine. Uh, you know, worked with him 
uh, Alabama Intel for a long, a long period of time, and we still talk regularly. Uh, you know, he's he's a contributor in many ways uh, to Alabama football as an insider, one of the best there is, and that's William Redfish Barger. William, how are you tonight? Hey, I'm doing great, Drew. How about you, man? Doing great, and uh, I know you got a chance with not many people did to, to see uh, firsthand what happened last Saturday. And and what I've always loved about you is your blunt honesty uh, in the situation. You put on the you put on the pads. You put you played for the Tide, but you're you're always a realist when it comes to the football team. And I know there were some good things that they did Saturday, but from a quarterback perspective, it just it wasn't good. And as Cecil Hurt uh, tweeted out after Nick Saban's press conference uh, tonight at six, uh, the quarterback situation is still chaos. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what went on tonight. You know, today at practice, but uh, you know, I think the best uh, description I can describe what I saw Saturday was, you know, maybe you know, liking it to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, I, I mean, I have not. It's been ten, fifteen years since I've seen not just one, but collectively as a group, um, all the quarterbacks in a scrimmage at Bryant Denny Stadium just struggle with the everyday characteristics of what a quarterback is supposed to do. Um, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, hitting, you know, uh, 40-yard post patterns and, and, and back shoulder throws. I'm talking about struggling to complete screen passes, uh, you know, swing passes to the running backs out of the backfield. Uh, you know, the bread and butter play last year to Amari Cooper, but the bubble screen. Um, it, it was rough, and uh, you know I've, I've already told you this, and I don't mind sharing it with the listeners. I got up and walked out after an hour and a half. I, I, I had seen all I wanted to see. William, I wanted to ask you: uh, Did you see anybody who could at least be 1992 Jay Barker? You know, I mean, Carrie, the, the, there was one series that David Cornwell had, and it was threes versus threes. But a, a pretty good, you know, thunderstorm came through. And, you know, me and the people that I, were, I was with at the scrimmage went and, you know, kind of hid in the tunnel to let it pass over. Because I was expecting the, the horn to sound and them to call the, you know, send the kids into the locker room. And I didn't see any of the passes that led up to the touchdown that David Cornwell threw. But from what I was told, once I got back into the stands, that he had about a, you know, 50 to 60-yard drive. And, and I saw the pass. I didn't know who had thrown it, but I saw the pass because it was, you know, completed into the north end zone, and we were in the tunnel right there, um, you know, on the rammer jammer side of the stadium, the last tunnel before the end zone. Uh, but I didn't get to see, you know, what led into that but supposedly from what i was told after we left and they did uh you know red zone and, and then they did uh plus territory and some more third down work i mean i heard that morris and, and bateman and, and even cornwell to a certain extent um you know did some good things and uh you know drew drew actually you know asked me to rank the quarterbacks on, on what i saw that day and you know i said well from what i saw i would rank them Blake Barnett, one, David Cornwell, two, Alec Morris, three, uh, Cooper Bateman, four, and Jacob Coker, five. And, you know, you sit there and you say, well, you just got through telling me that Blake Barnett had three interceptions. And that's well, what I'm trying to tell you is I view that as a positive based on what I saw. 
because those three picks were three more passes that I didn't see from somebody else that were actually catchable by somebody. And those were actually three passes that either the wide receivers or the DBs could actually catch. A lot of the stuff, especially from Coker, you know, they weren't even catchable balls. So, um, you know, it just, you know, and you, you want to sit there and say, uh, you know, Kenyon Drake didn't scrimmage. Derrick Henry basically didn't scrimmage. Um, you know, is, is Alabama's, you know, second team defense as good as, you know, what these quarterbacks will see in a lot of games? You know, maybe. Um, but it, it was, you know, again, I bet you, you know, when you say, you know, Drake didn't play, uh, Henry didn't play, you know, they might have run uh, Damian Harris 10 times, but, you know, 90% of the plays, you know, were, were passes. I mean, it was a, you know, proverbial passing scrimmage. Yeah, William, and I, and that's what I've heard as well uh, from multiple people. They only threw about 12 passes, and the defense knew what was coming. But I guess uh, the thing that I'm, I'm wondering about and the thing that has been encouraging to me uh, since that time uh, is the, what I heard Monday with how Blake Barnett kind of bounced back. I mean, he did make mistakes. He is a young kid. He's 18 years old. Uh, but, again, George Whitfield, as you know, uh, said some poignant things about him, said he's as good as any 18-year-old quarterback I've ever been around, and he's the best 18-year-old quarterback I've ever been around. And and I thought uh, what I heard in the, the morning practice uh, on Monday, he went head up with David Cornwell and outperformed him with the ones and then threw the only touchdown pass versus the ones in the evening practice. You know, I've not heard specifically, you know, how the group did on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday today, but I think uh, that showing that mental fortitude is, uh, is important. And I know uh, you've uh, t- said uh, something about this, but if Alabama's had a true freshman start at left tackle like Cameron Robinson and then uh, a true freshman in 2007 like uh, Rolando McClain, who was the signal caller at middle linebacker, why not have a, a true freshman quarterback start against Wisconsin? And I know you you said the same. So what are your thoughts on Blake Barnett and possibly starting against the Badgers? You know, I just don't think he's going to start against Wisconsin. Um, and, again, I think people are focusing on, you know, the Wisconsin game is like the, the drop, dead what, drop dead day to have a permanent starter in place. And I think you have to, you know, take a step back and look at this thing through the eyes from a, from a coaching perspective. Um, I, I think the old Miss game, what is this, the old Miss game the third game of the year? Yes, it is the third game of the okay. year, William. I, I think that's the drop dead day. Um, I think you're going to see multiple quarterbacks, probably two, um, you know, play against Wisconsin and whoever the sister of the poor game is, the second game of the year. I don't even know. Louisiana Monroe, maybe. I don't know. Middle Um, Tennessee. Middle Tennessee, okay. Um, And I think you're going to see it play out on the field. Um, You know, from from all the people that I've talked to, um, you know, in in coaching and, and, you know, current players, um, I don't think it's any secret that everybody feels like that Blake Barnett is the future at that position. Um, that being said, I don't think that the head coach um, is ready to pull that trigger against Wisconsin. You know, is there a chance that Blake Barnett plays against Wisconsin? 
possibly. Uh, but I think you'll see it play out just like you did with A.J. McCarron and Phillip Sims and, uh, you know, last year with, with Blake and, and uh, Coke. Um, I think you'll see two quarterbacks play in those first two games. Uh, they want to have somebody established that they start against Ole Miss and, you know, in a, in a home field environment before they go to Georgia. Um, in a hostile environment. And, and I just don't think that, you know, I think the quarterback board changes every day. You know, like you said, there's nobody has really separated themselves and, you know, established themselves as that guy. Um, you know, I, I had a source that, you know, spoke with a, a current wide receiver and a current DB today. And, you know, both of them said that they think it's going to be Alec Morris. And, you know, when I asked why, uh, you know, they said because he has done the least amount of damage to hurt himself, which means he's made the least amount of mistakes. So that doesn't mean he's the most talented guy, but, you know, I think we're getting back into the mode of, of game manager to a certain extent. Um, you know, and after, you know, seeing the videos and reading all the glowing from Whitfield on Blake Barnett, um, you know, the thing that really stuck stuck out to me Saturday about him um, is that I just don't see a commanding, you know, arm talent with him. Um, it's good enough. I mean, he's got enough arm strength to get the ball where it's supposed to be. And to me, he's the best guy on the team, you know, at throwing fade passes and, and back shoulder throws. I mean, he's got some really good natural QB instincts. Um, you know, in his DNA, I mean, he's got good timing, good instincts. You know, the, the biggest <clears throat> criticism that I can give Jacob Coker is he's totally the opposite. You know, the worst two things that he does is trying to complete a crossing pattern or a quick slam. If, if there's a pass that needs to be completed that involves properly, you know, leading the football and putting it at a point to where, he thinks that receiver is going to meet the mesh point of the ball. He really struggles uh, with that concept of quarterback play. And, and I liken it to, you know, anybody out there that's ever, you know, hunted doves or, or ducks. You know, you can't point your shotgun where a dove or a duck is flying at you. You've got to be able to lead it and pull the trigger and anticipate where that load's going to meet from the shotgun cell where the bird's flying. And he's got no concept of that whatsoever. And so when you, when you think about, you know, what Alabama was good at last year with Blake and Amari, um, that's a big factor because, you know, that, that, you know, bubble screen, the slants, crossing patterns, you know, that's what, you know, Blake and Amari were so adept at last year. William, I wanted to uh, ask you uh, what your impressions were Saturday while you were there uh, of the secondary in general and also who besides Minka Fitzpatrick, who obviously is looking great, who besides him stood out to you and got some picks? You know, I mean, really the whole secondary, Kerry. Um, I think that was probably, you know, all the positives that took place in that scrimmage besides the pass protection from the offensive line. And I think that's another thing that you have to consider is, you know, at least from the first team offense perspective, 
it, it really makes the quarterbacks look even worse because they were not under constant duress and pressure. You know, I think at least while I was there, I think Dominic Jackson, you know, got clipped once by uh, Christian Miller and maybe a, a second time by Tim Williams. Um, and I think that's going to be a storyline going forward in the season because, you know, it didn't matter who they lined up on Cam Robinson. I mean, they, they trotted everybody that they've got out on them, and I don't think they got, you know, two yards of penetration into the, the pocket area the whole day that I was there. But that secondary, I mean, it looks like a totally different unit than what you saw last year. Um, you know, Minka Fitzpatrick got to start Saturday. You know, when you put it in perspective, that was his first college scrimmage. Um, he had two picks and three pass breakups. And I don't think a pass was completed to his side of the field. Um, you know, on the other side, Cyrus Jones uh, looks like a completely different player. You know, and that's one of the things that I've always respected about Cyrus is, you know, he's going he's gonna to come up against a six-foot-five Mike Evans probably at some point in time this year where he's going to get out, you know, sized and, and give up some plays. But, man, I'll tell you what, that, that guy will fight you to the death. Um, you know, I had a chance to rewatch the, the Auburn game uh, a couple weeks ago when the SEC Network was replaying all the games last year. And, you know, watching him, you know, hand shuck and, and push a guy that's 225 pounds out of bounds like Duke Williams. Um, yeah, I've got a, you know, I don't normally have a lot of respect for the little people in college football, but I like that guy a lot. Um, you know, the, the, those were the two starters. Um, you know, I did see Kirby Smart get real creative um, on, on the third down period. I looked out there one time uh, when they were in their dime package, and, and, you know, lo and behold, he had uh, Ronnie Harrison lined up next to Reggie Ragland at inside linebacker. Um, so I, I really think that Mel Tucker has has brought some new concepts and some new ideas, and you know I think they're in the process of really revamping some of their DB principles back there. Um, you know, it, it's hard to sit there and say that you know the pass rush is any better because you know if it's if it's best on best, you can forget about somebody getting any pressure on Cameron Robinson. Um, you know, they did have a little bit of success with Dominic Jackson, but it was nowhere near, you know, what you saw him give up from a pressure standpoint in the A-Day game. But, uh, you know, I think, uh, let's see, Tony Brown and Silver running second team at corners, and then you had a pair of former five-star corners, uh, Marlon Humphrey and Kendall Sheffield running with threes. And, and there were some instances when they would fluctuate back and forth uh, between nickel and dime, where they brought Anthony Averett in, and he was running at one of the corners, and Cyrus Jones went inside to, uh, uh, you know, the, the star or the money position. And, yeah, I agree with him. I think Coach Tucker uh, is going to make a huge impact uh, with the secondary. And, and I wanted to ask you, kind of piggybacking off that, I know we've both been very high on Coach Tosh Lupoy and, and now taking over the outside linebackers. We know what kind of recruiter he is. We've been very excited about what he could bring to the table as a coach. What did you see out of that group during the scrimmage that excited you? Um, you know, and I think if for, for Alabama fans, if you really – and I'm kind of a, you know, a line of scrimmage freak when it comes to this stuff. But I, I started following Tosh's career 
um, you know, after he stole Ken Allen from Nick Saban um, when he was at Cal and, and, and really started paying attention when I saw him produce two first-round draft picks on the defensive line up at Washington. But if you go to Google and type in Tosh LePoy, you know, Washington Huskies football and click on the video part, you know, there's about a three-minute video where they follow him around, you know, at practice up there his last year at Washington. And, you know, this may be, you know, a little bit too technical for some of the listeners, but, you know, if, if you enjoy somebody that is a elite recruiter, um, I liken Tosh to uh, the, the defensive side of Alabama's coaching staff with Mario Cristobal, you know, a great X's and O's guy that's, you know, one of the best recruiters in college football, but, you know, Tosh is a stickler for details. Um, you know, if a player doesn't get it right the first time, he makes them repeat it rep after rep after rep until they do get it right. You know, he's a young man. I think Tosh is only 33 or 34 years old. He gets out there and gets down and dirty, and if they don't know how to do it, he physically shows them how. Um, but, you know, they've got so many people, you know, at the, at the Jack and Sam position, you know, when they transition into their 4-2 package or the dime package, the Jack and Sam goes out the window, and those guys all become defensive ends. But I still see the most production and the most disruption um, out of all those guys, especially the young guys, um, out of Christian Miller. Um, you know, I'd say him and Tim Williams are probably the two best edge dressers that they have. Um, you know, Evan certainly has the best first step. But, but, you know, if, if guys like Dominic Jackson, Cameron Robinson get their hands on him, you know, at 230 pounds, they can overwhelm him physically and lock him out. Um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, bringing Dylan Lee in, uh, you know, an inside linebacker and Reggie Ragland walking up and rushing off the edge. And that's probably the, the best thing, the second best thing I saw besides the new look to the DBs is, is there's some creativity out there. You know, it's not, you know, hey, here comes the rabbit package. It's the same four guys rushing the passer. You know, they were rotating so many guys in and out of there on the edge. You know, Sean Han, uh, Christian Miller, Rashawn Evans, Tim Williams, you know, you look out there and see, you know, Raglan coming off the edge, Denzel Duvall. You know, they got a lot of bodies and a lot of different skill sets, I think, to work with in that area. Thomas, yeah. I believe we had we had a question from a caller that actually didn't come on the air. Yeah, we did. Uh, this is a question uh, from Mike from Enterprise, Alabama, and it's to all three of you. And he wants to know from your sources. If Wisconsin was tomorrow, if the Alabama Crimson Tide had to take the had to take the field tomorrow, who starts at quarterback? Fish, go ahead. You know, Mike, I wish I could offer you some better insight. Um, I don't know. You know. It's like we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, I think that that changes basically daily. Um, you know, put a gun to my head based on what I was told today um, and what I saw last Saturday at the scrimmage, I would have to go with Alec Morse. Drew, who you got? Well, uh, you know, everybody wants to know that. I think it's going to play itself out over the next few practices and, then, of course, the scrimmage Saturday. But, you know, I'm going to agree with William. You know, I've been talking to a lot of people, uh, including close to players, 
And I believe right now, you know, William made a great point about Alec not being the most talented guy. And I think Coach Stavins even told people that. But what he is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is a football nerd. And that's in a good way. He knows the offense in in and out. Uh, He's got the best knowledge of the checks. Uh, and, and mentally, it's just it has the, he's mastered the playbook completely. Uh, as you saw earlier in the in the spring in March, Blake Sims made some telling comments that you know Alec was a great sounding board for him and an extra set of eyes and helped him a lot last year. And I think you know he's limited from a talent standpoint, but as William has pointed out, he can be a game manager. I just think Coker has been way too erratic. I know Phil Savage was. Uh, on record today as saying Jake Coker uh, would start the first game. But, you know, a lot of people, including Savage, myself, and people a year ago thought Coker would start last year and did not. Uh, You know, Jake did not perform well last Saturday, uh, has missed some practice time this week, and will continue to miss reps. Uh, We will see how he performs uh, in the scrimmage Saturday. But if Alec Morris, you know, I I heard he did a a pretty decent job last Saturday, especially early in and Coach Saban said today that Alec Morris and even Cooper Bateman uh, performed well. But I think Alec Morris may very well take that first snap. And uh, I know he's also can be, he will be invaluable in helping the maturation process of Blake Barnett as well. Kerry, before I ask you this question, I do want to highlight something and just explain. The scrimmage on Saturday is going to be really huge for setting that final depth chart. So anything that we say here, might change coming out of Saturday's scrimmage. But, Kerry, if you had uh, – if if Alabama had to play tomorrow, who you got at quarterback? Unless he has an amputation or slaps somebody in the face for the last name Saban, I got Jay Coker. Hey, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me add something back in there for Mike's question. Um, this is something that I saw two years ago. Uh, I walked out of the last scrimmage in the spring of 2013 – and, and told everybody that I knew that I had just I just saw who I knew for a fact was going to take over for A.J. McCarron after he graduated. Alec Morris had a phenomenal spring practice in 2013, and I was convinced he was going to take over for him. And, and just like you saw, you know, in, in previous springs, uh, he, he came back in the fall, um, not just with him, with a lot of these other quarterbacks, including Coker, and, you know, fell apart. And going back to what Drew said about Alec being a football nerd, um, he's already decided his career path once football is over for him and he wants to be a coach. And I think that, you know, goes back to what Drew said about him having the knowledge of the playbook. Um, you know, and I'll share this with Mike since he's asking. Um, you know, the, the, my source that spoke with two current players today uh, one of them was a, a wide receiver that will be in the starting rotation. Uh, the other one is a five-star uh, defensive back that is, you know, a year and a half removed, two years removed from high school. And basically they gave the same answer about Jacob Coker but in a different way. The wide receiver said he thinks it's going to be Alec Morris because as a wide receiver, Jacob Coker – makes his job that much more difficult because of how he goes about reading defenses. The defensive back basically said, that's why I want it to be Alec Morris, because Jacob Coker makes my job as a DB that much more easier because of the way he reads defenses. 
and I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, Mike, I hope that answered your question. We actually have a Twitter question. I don't think we've ever had a Twitter question come in like this, but this is from Play Like a Champion, who is a mainstay on my other podcast, Two Deep Zone. But, uh, Fish, this one comes to you. Uh, Who moves to center if Ryan Kelly gets injured? And what kind of effect would that have on the team? Um, you know, there's a couple of different options there. Um, you know, as, as of today, it would be JC Hassenauer. Um, he's, he's really proved himself to, you know, Mario Cristobal and the team. Um, you know, he, he's kind of the next man up at that position for some reason. If, you know, he had to come apart in the game. You know, they've got a guy that played winning football last year when Ryan Kelly got hurt last year. And I think that's a great question because, you know, Ryan does have a history of of knee problems. Uh, But you saw last year when he got hurt, Bradley Bozeman, uh, you know, filled in for him admirably in my position. You know, Bradley is a a natural guard, um, but he's probably got the – he's the strongest player on the team and can probably play – both guard spots, center, and probably even survive at right tackle. He couldn't survive at left. But first guy up is, is J.C. Hassenauer, and if something didn't go right there, you would see Bradley Bozeman slide in there, and they would bring um, you know, either Alphonse Taylor or Josh Casher off the bench to fill in at his guard spot. And, and William, to, to, to piggyback on the offensive line as a group, uh, because they had a, a, basically a passing scrimmage, I thought one of the things you said to me, one of the tidbits that was the most encouraging, was the fact that as a group, uh, the the five, the ones, the pass protection was very good, which means uh, there's been some improvement by Dominic Jackson and, of course, Mr. Bozeman, who I spoke to at Fanda, who I think is in excellent shape. And I, a lot of people have said, you know, Coach Saban was talking about Shank Taylor still being in the mix, but. I do believe Bozeman will be the right guard. And uh, Dominic Jackson, everyone knows about his run-blocking prowess, but if he can improve as a pass protector, I think this O-line, uh, and I think we, we all know how what you think of Ross Piercebacher, but I think they can be a really good group. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think, you know, what happened to Dominic in the A-Day game is, you know, he, he really allowed um, Tim Williams to get in his head. And, and, you know, he started taking some sloppy pass sets. You know, that's the – the cardinal sin of, a, of an offensive tackle for, for people that don't understand this concept, you know, the, the left tackle and the right tackle are responsible for setting the width of the pocket on a passing play. The center and the two guards are responsible for setting the depth. And what I mean by that is, you know, if one of the tackles gets beat, you know, the quarterback has to be able to step up in the pocket to complete the pass. And if, you know, the center of the two guards have not established the depth of the pocket, then the quarterback doesn't have anywhere to step up to. And, you know, I just think that, you know, what what Mario has been able to do from a recruiting standpoint, um, you know, in the last two years, and he's well on his way to getting another, you know, number one O-line class if, if Ole Miss doesn't steal Greg Little away. Um, but this is, you know, they, they are loaded for bear at, at center and guard. They're four or five deep at each position when you when you think that you know you got Ryan Kelly, JC Hassenauer, Bozeman could fill in there, and then Brandon Kennedy uh, you know is is you know taking reps there with the third team. 
Um, you know, and I think it's going to be, you know, Mario's created such a monster. Um, you know, this time next year, you know, a guy that could have gone anywhere in the country that he wanted to, Richie Pettibone, um, you know, is he going to have the patience to stick around for three years if he's not capable of beating out Pierce Bacher or Bozeman? You know, you're looking at a guy that's going to have to stick around for three years before he even has a chance to start. And, you know, once Jonah Williams hits campus, uh, you know, Matt Womack has been a pleasant surprise, you know, at right tackle. You've got Charles Baldwin coming in. He's probably going to take over. Um, either him or Lester Cotton will be your, your right tackle next year. But, you know, you're, you're talking about if they can hang on to everybody that they've got. Uh, it's going to be a difficult uh, monster for Mario to manage because, you know, going forward in recruiting, you can't offer instant playing time to anybody. You're talking about a three-year wait um, for playing time at any one particular position. And that's why I've said from day one, uh, you know, it's it, it's great that the, the staff feels like they've got Greg Little right now, but mark my words, uh, wait till he takes his official visit to Old Miss, and they show him that Laramie Tunsil's gone, instant playing time. Uh, they've got a proven track record where they're going to put out a top five prospect at left tackle next year. And guess what, son? You can come in and be the next man up. William, I wanted to ask uh... – Speaking of blocking, what did you see uh, at the scrimmage in regards to blocking and even receiving, if there was any, by the tight end position and the H-back position? Um, I saw a guy, uh, I think we can all just, you know, skip over A.J. Howard when it comes to blocking. Um, and, again, I saw a young man that is a an elite athlete drop three passes because he was scared of getting hit. But the guy that I think has really, well, there's so many guys that have transformed their bodies. Um, you know, somebody has finally gotten the memo to Scott Cochran uh, that, that bigger is not better in the current environment with college football. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, and you hear this every year, and I'm probably as guilty as anybody of saying, you know, when these guys get off the bus, they're going to be the scariest looking team in college football. But it, it really is scary. Um, you know, Dakota Ball looks to me like he's lost 30 or 40 pounds. I mean, he actually looks like a tight end, you know, versus Nick Gentry with a receiver-eligible number and his, you know, factory worker beer gut hanging out. Um, you know, he's not the best receiving threat in the world, but I think he has a chance, especially with, you know, Brandon Green having to be, uh, you know, the second-team right tackle right now, I think he's got a chance to really make an impact. Um, you know, Ty Flornery Smith is more like an O.J. Howard than he is a Mike Williams. He's more of an H-back than he is a tight end. And I really do think that he has a chance to be, you know, kind of a, a, a Brad Smelly at H-back. You know, I'm not trying to sit here and sell anybody that he's going to be Jalston Fowler as a blocker or a run threat, but he's a talented receiver. He really is. Um, you know, that, that, that position to me, you know, there's two positions that I think, you know, the stat, or three of the quarterbacks in there, obviously, but the three positions that I think they've really struggled with, uh, you know, since the, the 08 class when they brought Mike Williams in 
you know, quarterbacks signing an inline tight end and, uh, um, you know, getting that, you know, H-back, fullback combo. Um, you know, you know, go and look and see what Mike Williams is, is doing right now. He's, he's in contention with the Detroit Lions of being their starting right tackle. And, you know, I think that's something that, you know, that was Joe Pendry's initial plan for Mike Williams is he was going to bring him in and bulk him up and, and turn him into the next great left tackle, um, you know, after Andre Smith and James Carpenter got gone. Uh, but I will say this, um, because I, I do think that Alabama's offensive line, and, and, you know, the people that are going to be at the scrimmage Saturday can, you know, chime in on this. Um, because there was not much of a uh, an effort to, you know, mix the play calling up and make it balanced. I mean, it was a passing scrimmage from the get-go, which could have made things more challenging for the quarterbacks. Uh you know, one, one area of the team that we haven't talked about that is the obvious strength of this team is the defensive line. Uh, Jaron Reed was unblockable. And, and you know, if, if I have to talk about, other than the quarterbacks, the worst moment of the scrimmage that I saw, uh, they got down there in goal line work and ran Damian Harris up the middle. And Jonathan Allen, Sean Robinson, and Jaron Reed basically converged on him at the same time. And when they got up off the pile, all three of those guys were laying on the turf. And I was like, you know, I'm never coming back to another scrimmage because all three of those guys are flat on their backs. You know, I really thought there was a serious injury, um, you know, if not with all three, but at least one of them, but they all got up and they're fine. But, you know, that's that. There's there's some special things going on in that front seven. Um, you know, a guy that I was not really high on as a recruit last year. I thought he was overrated as a five-star. Uh, Deron Payne, uh, you know, and you have to put this into perspective, and that's why I think there's been some radical changes with Scott Cochran and the strength and conditioning program. You know, Darren Payne had a broken bone in his foot in May and was not really allowed to go full speed in the conditioning part of, of the the summer program until July the 1st and they peeled about 30 pounds off of him. He's down around 315 right now. And he has blown by Joshua Frazier. Um, you know, not so much. I don't want to categorize him as a Terrence Cody, Josh Chapman, Darren Lake, zero technique nose guard. Um, he's got more, you know, one and three technique defensive tackle skill set in him. And, and, you know, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not trying to set him up for failure, but he does have some Marcel Darius qualities to him, uh, very explosive and violent hands. Uh, but, you know, you're looking at a guy right now, Darren Payne is a true freshman that is sitting at number two right now on the defensive line. Um, you know, and I think he's going to really play early and often, you know, once the season gets kicked off against Wisconsin. Well, and William, you know, you always could see the talent with Payne, but he had just gotten too heavy at Shades Valley and from his junior to senior year, and he didn't make as many plays. But uh, it was all about potential with him. It looks like he has a chance to fulfill that, uh, which is really, really exciting. Uh, but but also, you know, we, we and we and again, we haven't really talked about uh, the middle linebackers, but 
uh, you got to be uh, excited about the, first of all, I think Kirby Smart's returning to the area where he's, he's most effective coaching and, and Reggie Ragland really showed the level of improvement everybody was excited about. But I think the other thing that everybody's excited about is Reuben Foster because he had a tremendous spring. Uh, and, and to me, there hasn't been a lot of talk about him in the fall, but that's good. I think he stayed healthy. I think he's making progress. And then a guy like Dylan Lee, who's always been an NFL caliber, Larry Izzo, 10-year type talent as far as this is a special teamer, but has always been talented. Uh, now has a chance in his senior year uh, to be a factor because they don't—they're not in regular lots. And when they're in the nickel and the dime, especially the nickel, he will be playing quite a bit. Ruben, you know, might see his reps go down, but I'm excited to see what both uh, Dylan Lee and Ruben Foster can do in 2015. Yeah, and, and you know, you'll you'll see this Saturday when you're there, Drew. Um, you know, because I normally do focus all of my attention on the line of scrimmage people, the offensive line, the tight ends, the D-line, and the linebackers. And, and you know, because of the, the quarterback situation, I, I kind of gravitated away from the line of scrimmage and, you know, uh, watched the quarterbacks and the DBs more than I usually do. But, you know, you know, again, you know, I think so many people were caught off guard last year with, with the way Reggie Ragland played. And, you know, my response to that is, well, you know, what did you expect him to do the two years previous to that when he was playing behind, you know, the AFC of the year and and a pro bowler and C.J. Mosley? You know, he didn't have a chance to get on the field that much except for mop-up duty. Um, But, you know, Saturday, you know, at the the inside linebacker position, you know, it was Reggie and Ruben, you know, with the ones. Um, You know, I'm talking about in the base look. Um, you know, it was Keith Holcomb and Sean Dion Hamilton, too. And, I, you know, this is somebody, Drew, that you and I have interviewed and, and have been very high on. You know, you look out there with the threes, and I see this, you know, white guy out there calling and barking the signals out, you know, a la Vinny Sinceri. And, you know, the two guys that are, you know, with the threes is Keaton Anderson and uh, Adonis Thomas. And, you know, that's 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 a lot of depth. I mean, I, I understand that, you know, after Reggie and Ruben, you know, they're not proven. But they're still, you know, Ke- you know when you see the reports that Keaton Anderson is 225, um, I'd have to see him get on a scale in front of me to not say that he's not bigger than that. Uh, but, you know, he was calling that 13 defense. Um, you know, Adonis Thomas is very athletic you know, kind of in the same light of, uh, you know, Blake Barnett. He could use a couple of ham sandwiches in the next couple of months. Um, and I'll tell you another guy. I don't know yet where his best position is, you know, whether or not he can stick at Jack or, or maybe he has to become an Ed Stinson and, and put weight on. But one of the prettiest guys that you will see at that scrimmage Saturday is Joshua McMillan. Um, and, you know, he got a lot of, you know, reps with the threes, a little bit with the twos. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it, it's just when, and when you're there Saturday, you'll appreciate what I'm telling you now. You know, they, they bounce around from base to, you know, nickel to dime, and, and they're, you know, you know, you know, I felt sorry for DJ Petway. Um, you know, the, the poor guy probably lost 10 pounds in three hours Saturday uh, running on and off the field. Um, you know, he's a role player. He's a pass rusher. Um, 
but you know those linebackers and those defensive linemen and those DBs, you know, every level of the defense, they are running on the field, running off the field, changing personnel. Um, and I think they really do. I think Nick has done such a good job, um, you know, in the last two years of, of basically recruiting two different totally defenses. You know, he's got his base guys. You know, he's got Baron Lake to play the zero technique. And, you know, he's got Reggie and Ruben to be the thumpers, uh, you know, to stop people like Georgia and LSU. But you just look at the athletes when they trot on and off that field. It's it's impossible unless you've got a, a court reporter, you know, sitting next to you keeping track of all of it. It's impossible to keep up with. William, uh, final question for me, and then I'll let Drew close it out. Uh, we, I think we all four on this broadcast right now know that everything is solid at, at long snapper, at, at holder, at punter, best in the country. But based on what I heard from the scrimmage Saturday, and I'm not sure how much of this you saw, is it safe to say that place kicking is a little bit of a concern still? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement, um, Kerry. I, I, you know, and again, I don't know if, if Adam Griffin is, you know, back to 100% or not. Um, you know, I thought he did a pretty good job with his with his kickoffs. Uh, you know, that's something else that we didn't talk about, you know, the the, the kickoff return guys. Um, you know, Calvin Ridley and, uh, you know, Charlotte were, were both factoring in there with, with Cyrus Jones. Um, you know, with Chris Black being in a black jersey. Um, you know, I think he's a guy that's probably going to be in there as well. But, you know, he started off really good. Um, like I said, once I had my come apart and I left the scrimmage, I don't know what happened after I left. But I did see Adam Griffin miss, I think, one from 45 and the other one from 38. Um, so I do think that's, a you know, a bit of a concern to keep your eye on. Um you know, when you're in that kind of environment, you know that the defensive line's not really coming at you full speed. And, um, you know, you're in a friendly environment. There's, you know, not people hollering at you. And on national TV, the fact that he's still, you know, got some consistency issues. Um, I do think that's a fair statement to say that um, it's something to keep your eye on. Um, and, again, you know, we didn't touch on the wide receivers. Um, I don't know, probably going to play out the way it did, you know, with, uh, Amari as a true freshman. Uh, but, you know, kind of like, you know, what we said at the top of the show with, with, you know, Blake Barnett is the obvious future at quarterback, even though I personally think, uh, there's a kid coming in January named Jalen Hurts that'll give him a run for his money. Um, Calvin Ridley is the real deal, uh, you can see he's got greatness written right across the back of his jersey. Um, and, again, he just didn't get a lot of opportunities from the quarterbacks to get him the ball. But uh, And, again, something else, too, that, that I think, going back to what y'all asked me about the DBs, and let's take the bad quarterback play out of the equation and say that, you know, whether they were open or not, you know, could the quarterbacks have gotten them the ball? The biggest difference that I saw about that DB unit Saturday was, you know, versus Auburn and and, uh, Ohio State where you saw people running wide open. Even though the quarterbacks couldn't have delivered the ball, 
I didn't see one single time where I thought that DB unit had somebody running a muck wide open, you know, down the sideline or down the deep middle of the field where I was like, well, if the quarterback gets him the ball, that's a touchdown. That never happened one time. That's big, William. And, and I'm glad we, I was going to ask you my final question about the wide receivers. And I, I'd seen Calvin Ridley August the 9th, and he definitely has the rockets in his rear. He's the, he's the real deal. He's got the explosion. Just needs to mature as a player. Uh, obviously, you know, Richard Mullaney had some – Coach Saban had some praise for him today. That he's definitely going to be involved. Chris, Chris, Chris Black. Hold on. I meant to touch on him and was going right. to share with y'all, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I was told about him, uh, you know, back when they were doing seven-on-seven seven in the summer. When you watch him, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing that stands out about him. I mean, he's not 6'4". Um, he's not lightning fast, but, you know, I was told over the summer that, you know, and I don't want to set him up for failure, but, you know, the one comparison I can make to him that you hear everybody talk about Duke Williams at Auburn is if you put the ball, you know, within his catch radius, Duke Williams is going to come down with a ball. I think that's a fair comparison to uh, Mulraney based on the seven-on-seven reports that I got. It didn't take him two weeks to catch the attention you know, of the current players. Um, and I wish I would have seen better quarterback play to, you know, make a more intelligent observation on him. But, you know, he's somebody that is involved. Um, I think you'll see him and Chris Black, you know, compete pretty heatedly for that slot wide receiver role. Uh, but he is involved. I think, I think uh, you know, the established guys, um, you know, Robert Foster, Darius Stewart, Chris Black, those are probably the you know the uh, the top three, but you know Mulraney, uh, Calvin Ridley, and, and Charlotte are three newcomers that I think will factor in early and often at that position. And finally, the last question: I know they didn't run the ball much. But what was your impressions of Damian Harris? You know, I had been told, Drew. It's, I'm glad you asked me about that. Again, I wish I could sit here and tell you and Carrie and the listeners. The, the, and I think y'all will get a better idea Saturday than I did because it'll be more of a, you know, a balanced scrimmage versus, uh, you know, looking like the How Mummy Air Raid that I saw or the attempt at it anyway. Um, you know, I was told, you know, by a current player that, that you know, Damian Harris reminded them of, uh, you know, T.J. Yeldon with Tyron Jones' moves. But when you look out there and you see him in that uniform, he really is the spitting image of Mark Ingram. He looks like a little cannonball. Um, you know, and I think, you know, Saturday was a little bit of a wake-up call for him, um, you know, because they put him in um, in some tough situations down there in short yardage and goal line, you know, against what I think is the best front seven in college football. And he didn't have a lot of places to run. Um, he didn't have a chance to really show what he can do. So I'll be interested to get – you know, your feedback after this Saturday scrimmage. Um, but he, he got a tough little initiation into SEC football on Saturday. I mean, you know, getting hit simultaneously in the hole by Ashawn Robinson, Jaron Reed, and Jonathan Allen, if he can survive that, uh, then he's ready for SEC football. No doubt, William. And I know he'll get a, a workload because I'm, I doubt Kenyon Drake will do much with him. They're going to hold him out with a hamstring. And Derrick Henry, they know what they have. So, We'll see Harris, a little bit of both Scarborough, but mostly Harris. Uh, 
I'm sure, and uh, and he and we'll definitely get a gauge on where he is as a player. But we want to thank you for joining us. You gave us nearly an hour tonight, uh, 50 minutes on BAMS Radio. Great stuff and insight as always, man. And we will, we hope you have a great night. But thank you for joining BAMS Radio once again. I know we'll be talking with you again uh, soon down the road. Hey, Drew Carey, enjoy talking a little Alabama football with you. Y'all guys have a good evening. Yeah, you too. Thank you. That's William Redfish Barger, everyone. One of the best inside information guys you can get for Alabama football. One of the best sources for inside info on the Crimson Tide. Uh, you only get it here on BAMS Radio and, of course, on uh, 97.7 The Zone Talking Ball. So if you ever want to hear William Redfish Barger, tune into BAMS Radio, tune into my show in Huntsville. You will get William Barger and uh, just some great uh, tidbits of info, great stuff, and uh, always plugged in uh, to the Crimson Tide. And I know now uh, we're going to give the Wizard a break and uh, carry a break and myself. We're going to take our little five-minute break here at 9 o'clock, everyone, and we'll be back with Hour 2 of uh, BAMS Radio in just a few moments. Stay with us, everyone. God, I see headlights. I made it down the coast in 17 hours, picking me a bouquet of dogwood flowers, and I'm a hoping for rally. I can see my baby tonight. But he's ahead and west from the Cumberland Gap 
to Johnson City, Tennessee. I gotta, I gotta move on before the sun. I hear my baby calling my name, and I know that she's the only one. And if I die in Raleigh, at least I will die free. So rock me, mama, like a wagon wheel. Rock me, mama, in a way you feel. Hey, mama, rock me. Oh, rock me, mama, like the wind and the rain. Rock me, mama, like a southbound train. Hey, Welcome back to BAMS Radio. It's five minutes after the hour of nine. If you're in the central time zone, uh, can if you're in the eastern and so forth and so on. I'm Terry Clark from BamaMag.com, your co-host along with Trudy Armand of 97.7 The Zone in Huntsville and Thomas Watts of Touchdown Alabama Magazine operating our studio in the port city of Mobile. That was a great first hour. A lot of excellent insight from William Redfish Barger about the scrimmage this past Saturday as well as some of the position battles that are continuing throughout the week. And uh, I just really can't say in words how excited I am, Drew, that we get to see them, all three of us get to see them in person this Saturday. Yeah, it's going to be an epic uh, scrimmage. Uh, usually uh, in the years past, uh, when we when uh, the, a lot of battles have already been decided, and they may have been this time, but usually, uh, you know, the last two years, the quarterback position, there was some uncertainty, though, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, I w- thought knew that Blake Sims had a really legitimate shot to beat out Coker last year, and was ahead of him going into Saturday. But you know, they knew Coker had a chance to perform and take the job. And, you know, he went. I think he went four for seventeen or four for eighteen, and Blake Sims uh, was solid. And uh, you knew uh, that, that it was going to be his position at least early in the season. Many wondered if Blake could hold the position, but he played at a high enough level uh, that he was able to keep the job all year. What will we see Saturday? Who will step up? But now it's not just really two guys carry. It's more like three, four, or five. And so you want to see someone come of age and use the Sabinism right now, take the bull by the horns, but nobody has done that yet. And so it's going to be very interesting to see. And And I want to see the defense, want to see Mel Tucker, coaching the secondary now that they've got some other pieces like Minka Fitzpatrick and Kendall Sheffield who we really didn't talk about a lot but he's in the mix now and uh, you want to see the young linebackers like Adonis Thomas like Keaton Anderson they're building depth there the D-line they're on pain blowing past Joshua Frazier uh you know Joshua and Joshua Frazier's a talented kid let's not get it twisted here uh but then we didn't talk about it a lot but Darren Lake is also uh, he, he's now a red shirt junior. He got his red shirt, so he realizes he's got a, you know, he, he's got a role, or he's going to get passed up. So there's a lot of competition, a lot of kids playing hard, and uh, you just want to see that. You want to see the Damian Harris's and the Calvin Ridley's, and uh, this this freshman class is special, carry, and I think it it harkens back to 08 and 09. Well, what separates this freshman class from the others that have come through? Yes, Alabama is able to field a team this fall that has five straight number one recruiting classes. That's that's a fact. But this freshman class, according to their teammates, has come in with the most businesslike approach, the most I'm taking it serious from day one, getting in the playbook, getting in the film room, uh, leaning on upperclassmen for advice, 
this is a freshman class, and I realize you got 20-year-old freshman Calvin Ridley in this class, but as a whole, this class, even the younger guys, they they seem to be more advanced from a maturity level than a typical freshman class. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, they they they're guys that haven't come in feeling entitled. They've come in and worked, and uh, they're all hungry and they want to play. And and several of them have proven it thus far. And I think it's going to be the backbone for another big time run for Nick Saban. I think he's going to he and Coach Brown are going to be the two greatest coaches that ever walked the planet before it's over with. I think Urban Meyer uh, is going to have his his place in college football, and it's going to be under Nick Saban's foot. And I think Nick Saban, uh, while Urban Meyer is a very good football coach, he's not Nick Saban, and Nick Saban's going to prove that. He's already run uh, Urban Meyer out of the Southeastern Conference. Now Jim Harbaugh is at Michigan and is going to make Urban Meyer's job much harder. Uh, and I and I now, and I believe, and and, and so uh, will uh, and, and Penn State is going to be a thorn in his side. You know, Penn State almost beat them last year. It was an overtime game. Uh, we'll see. You know, if Ohio State can handle it, can they handle the pressure of being number one? In 2009, they thought they were going to, and they ran into a buzzsaw called Alabama. And then we've got the year off because of quote unquote spending more time with your family. But in other words. He took the year off because he got his ass whipped. So, I mean, we'll see what happens with uh, Urban Meyer. There's been a lot of people lauding him. You know, he he uh, he won the game last year. I don't necessarily think he outcoached Nick Saban. I think uh, Nick Saban did one of his best coaching jobs last year. I don't think that was a supreme Alabama football team. I think he got the most out of that group. Uh, I, a lot of people talk about the lead that they blew. But, I mean, again, the stars were aligned for Ohio State. They did a very good job. They deserved to win the national championship. Uh, but let's see if they can uh, become a dynasty. Alabama uh, ha- has already proven one time uh, they called USC one of the greatest teams of all time. That was erroneous. Finch Young proved that. Alabama became what USC did not. And now can they continue to sustain it for not just five or six years, but for a, a double digit season? Well, I just want to jump in real quick and uh, piggyback off a point that you had, Drew. And, uh, Alabama fans will be very familiar with this idea. It's a hell of a lot easier to win when you're an underdog. It's a hell of a lot harder when you've got a huge target on your back. Oh, yeah, Ohio no State. doubt. I agree with that, but Ohio State's got such an easy schedule. There's there's almost no doubt, barring massive injuries, that they're going to be in the 14 playoff. We'll see what happens after they get there. Can they finish the United did Last year, it's definitely harder to defend a championship than it is to win one. But with their schedule, they're almost a lot to be in the 14 playoff, even if they go in as the four. But uh, I want to remind all our listeners who are listening live right now that you can call us with a question for Drew Thomas or myself. And the Big Heads Barbecue Hotline is 714-510-3707. Again, the number to call in is 714-510-3707. We thank Mike enterprise for his off-air question last hour and i'm quite sure in the next three or four minutes that we're going to hear from our good friend from greenville alabama uh hopefully marty is listening out there somewhere in gadsden alabama and he'll give us a call one of our old reliable callers from bams radio days of yore and uh hopefully joshua is listening uh she'll give us a call not that i'm hinting or anything but again the number on the big heads barbecue hotline one more time write it down remember it put it in your phone 714-510-3707. And, Drew, I wanted to uh, touch 
one more time before we get off of it um one of the last topics that i asked redfish about and uh and obviously there were some weather issues and all that and and, and adam griffith has had back problems but he says it doesn't hurt when he kicks anymore he doesn't feel the stab in his back that he was feeling all year last year but have you heard anything about adam in the uh, non-scrimmage practices where he may have shown any more consistency or not this year not too much i mean uh just that he felt that he was definitely felt like he was a healthier um i thought he had a pretty good spring carry i know he missed a couple of kicks in a day one where he slipped but i saw him in the scrimmages and his leg was strong he was accurate he was like four for five he did a really good job and off the the miss was uh from 50 around 50 yards so, and in the in the scrimmage saturday he made two between 45 and 50 uh, i was told he missed two to three in the 30 35 yard range which is is bs you got to make those kicks if you can't make them get eddie pinero in and drop kick the kid out I hate this to be harsh like that, but he's got one year to figure this stuff out. And then if he does that, he'll have a chance to kick as a senior. If not, he needs to graduate and hit it and let Eddie Pinheiro come in because I do think Eddie Pinheiro is a special talent. I know people say, well, you always say that about kickers, but uh, the, the YouTube doesn't lie and, and then what you hear doesn't lie. And we need to talk about something with Eddie Pinheiro as expected. He is not going to kick at Asa Junior College. He's going to redshirt and come to Alabama with four years to play four. Uh, so he will be a, a true freshman when he enrolls at Alabama uh, next, next, more than likely May. I'm anticipating he had academic issues. That's why he had to go to junior college. So I'm not sure he'll be able to do that in January. We'll see. But, again, when he enrolls, he is going to put heat on Adam Griffith. Adam Griffith had a superb high school career. Uh, and he's had some consistency issues at Alabama. Uh, but I'll bring up something Wes Neighbors said, uh, you know, on 97.7 The Zone this week. I mean, he remembers Lee Tiffin and the senior year he had. Well, Lee Tiffin struggled throughout the preseason and the spring going into the said senior year and then was lights out during the season and should have won the Lou Groza Award uh, as the best kicker in America in 2009 but got robbed by a kid out of UCLA, much like J.K. Scott got robbed of the Ray Guy Award last year. J.K. Scott's still getting robbed for preseason All-America lists. You see yeah, the fun writing he's all over him. What a joke that is. I haven't even looked at those, Thomas. Are you, so he, has he made any of them? He's second made second team. What are these guys drinking out there? What are these guys smoking? I mean, are, do, they, do they clean Gus Malzahn's toilet? <laughs> I mean – my goodness gracious. And with by the way, got to talk about that just a little bit. Uh, my man Gus with uh, Chris Lowe this week, who was on my show Monday, Chris Lowe got a chance to go behind the curtain of the barn, uh, you know, and, and see, go behind the scenes of their program. And Gus lets it slip that we should have scored 60 on Alabama. We let him off the hook, but we feel really good about the game being, uh, you know, at, at Jordan Hare Stadium. Uh, this November. Well, let me tell you something, man, and I can do this here, but, you know, Gus Malzahn is a pretty good football coach and a good offensive mind. But in my opinion, you don't need to poke the bear, my friend. You've already, uh, your, your Iron Bowl record, you've been at Auburn since 2009, and except for one season, that's 2012, when you got your butt run out of town after Cam Newton left, and Alabama put a beat down on you in the same stadium with a similar defense. 
in 2011, and you couldn't tackle Trent Richards, okay? So now you're going to talk about how, first of all, last summer it was all about I'm in Nick Saban's head. You know, they, they you know we, we beat them. The kick six in, Jer- in Jordan-Hare Stadium, yada, yada, yada. Well, you got beat at your own game last year, Gus. And let me tell you something. Alabama made some adjustments defensively in the second half against your vaunted offense. And if it wasn't for playing a little prevent, uh, you wouldn't have scored in the second half. You scored with like 20 seconds left. You were down three touchdowns after you got your ass ripped the whole second half. I mean, the ball game was over. You're lucky Alabama didn't drop 80 on you. So I think I would shut my mouth and go back to work and hope Will Muschamp could fix the defense and stop calling him the greatest defensive mind in all of college football when he may be the greatest, only, only about the third best defensive mind in his own damn division. Okay? And, 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 and I don't know if you've watched it enough yet, my friend, but Alabama didn't have too much trouble with the Gators last year and their vaunted defense and Dante Fowler. True freshman handled Dante Fowler, and I think Blake Sims and Amari Cooper are still scoring points against the Gators. So that's all I got to say about Gus Malzahn. I think, you know, I think you can have a very good football team, but you need to go out and prove it first and not be giving bulletin board material to your biggest rival who's like nothing better than to come into your stadium and crush your throat. Rant over. I think they'll have the best uh, nine and four, or maybe even eight and five team in the country this year. Nine and four, I think, is the ceiling. But uh, without further ado, that was a great rant. We Thomas and I both enjoyed that, as did our call on hold on the Big Heads Hotline, Big Head Barbecue Hotline. Go ahead and bring him on, Colin Big C McGuire. I like the. I still to this day don't understand why he. That wasn't very bright on his part making those comments. Uh, it's on about Gus, but that's all right. And by the way, Drew, I want to correct you on part of your rant. He said that uh, Will Muschamp was the best defensive mind in football, period. He didn't say college football. He said football, period, if you get my drill. Good good point, Big C. Yes, that's correct. I don't I – don't, I don't, but I just, you know <laughs> – I'm not trying to be mean to you. I just want to let everybody know he said he was the best oh, yeah. man, period, in football. That, that includes people in the NFL. But How brilliant was he in Bryant Denny last year against Kiffin? He wasn't too good. Gave up 42 points. If Alabama don't give up a fumble, and heck, the offense gives them – well, I mean, he had three turnovers, which, I mean, that's part of the game. But, I mean, the offense, their offense only gained 200 yards total offense that day. That's very true. Alabama gave them field position with turnovers. When they ran one fumble back for a touchdown, I also remember that day. But anyway, that's mm-hmm. all right. We beat the hell out of them. Uh, uh, let me ask y'all something. I was reading on the AL.com, and there's this the guy that's the quarterback coach for uh, uh, David Cornwell was speaking highly of him. Do you, does that – does that give y'all any kind of encouragement or something like that? Because it sounds like he, he said like he releases the ball a lot quicker than another candidate up there. What do y'all think on that? Well, I'll give you. He doesn't. Have, he hasn't had a very good camp. Yeah, that I'll I'll piggyback on Kerry that he has not had a very good camp, Big C. And I know you're a sports fan and a connoisseur of things like that. Um, I, I if you remember, I'll give you a. I've sent this video clip to several of my friends, but. The best way to describe both Jake Coker and David Cornwell in this camp 
is the scene in Bull Durham uh, early in the movie uh, where Kevin Costner, a.k.a. Crash Davis, has just been signed by the Durham Bulls, and he has, he has been his job is to mentor one uh, Nuke Lelouch. And he throws him the baseball and says, I want you to hit me in the chest with the ball. And uh, Nuke looks at him and says, if I do, I'll kill you. And he says, well, uh, me, I don't think you could hit water if you fell out of a boat. So I want you to hit me in the chest with the ball. And, of course, what does Nuke do? He throws it through the window. And I think that's basically what we've seen out of David Cornwell and Jake Coker. They've been too inaccurate and inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Coker still has a chance to win the job, but I will, I will, I will piggyback without question uh, what Kerry said. We've seen uh, David Cornwell in practice ourselves, and then we've talked to people. He has not stepped up and has not performed at all. Here's the okay, thing, so I agree. And, and, and I, you know, you, you would think that I would be pushing David Cornwell because my brother is pretty good friends with his dad through business. But mm. when I went to that Sunday practice, that fan day they call it, and sat in the press box and watched the quarterbacks throw. I mean, with Cornwell, I know everybody has a bad day now and then, but, I mean, I, I might as well have been watching Ray Stanton or, or Mark Gillen or something like that. I, I, he, he, he didn't have a good day that day. And my understanding is that – and Drew might come back me up on this and or he might just want to be the smart guy and stay out of it. But my understanding is that Cornwell had a pretty heated discussion with Lane Kiffin about the reps Blake Barnett was getting. Well, uh, I, I'll, can you confirm I'll just that, Drew? That, Kerry, I, I, I'll break into that. I, from what I understand, that may not necessarily have happened. Um, I don't think that's smart on Cornwell's part if he did. And besides, did right, right after that was reported, guys, that that morning, he or around the time that was reported that morning in the AM practice Monday, he got equal first team reps with Blake Barnett, and Blake Barnett outplayed him. So I'm not necessarily sure that happened. Uh, I just think he's been in the doghouse because he hasn't practiced well. Because later on, uh, I think in the PM practice, in the evening practice, or maybe the next morning or the next afternoon, Cornwell was in a in a drill with Lane Kiffin where you're supposed to throw the ball back to Lane. And he threw the ball 15 yards over Lane's head, and Lane didn't even move. And he looked at him like he was crazy. Yeah, he just looked at him like, bro, what are you doing? What the hell was that? In other words, Nuke Lelouch. Not, not the just, answer. He's not the answer this year, Big C. And I just don't think okay. right now. Now, he may come out this weekend, Big C, and perform, but he hasn't thus far. Well, I I, I will admit I was reading what the, his quarterback coach was saying in the paper, too, so that might have been what sucked you know, on that. Uh, um, but uh, now I understood Alec Morris looked all right. And what's y'all's opinion of him? Well, I just think he can – he's the most intelligent, uh, and that's not taking anything away from everyone else. He's been there four years, Big Z, but he has a very high football IQ. He knows the playbook backwards and forwards. He's going to be a coach, I believe. That's why he stayed at Alabama. It wasn't that – it wasn't the most important thing for him to play because if it was, he would have left. Uh, he has bided his time. Uh, I think the team has the most confidence in him because he knows all the checks and mentally he knows everything. He's just not as talented. Uh, as someone like Blake Barnett or even David Cornwell, even Cooper Bateman, probably Jake Coker. He's the least talented of the five, but he's the smartest. He has had turnover issues in the past, but he didn't do that so much so on last Saturday, and that's why a lot of people said he practiced well. If he can piggyback that 
you know, he's he. I've, I, you know, we're 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 efforting to find out, you know, what's happened since Monday's practices. But if he has continued to practice well and he's looked good in the media viewing period, and if he practices well Saturday again, he could very well win the job. Yeah. Okay, so right now, and I just, uh, me personally, I just think Barnett with him being a true freshman, I, I don't know, I'd be a little leery to start starting somebody off at Alabama that was in high school this time a year ago. Maybe y'all might disagree with that, but I just, unless he's, I mean, I don't know, what do y'all think on that? Let me do a little rant on that. I'm sorry, and excuse my language in advance. All these people, Media people and even some fans on message boards keep suggesting that if Coker and Barnett are, are, are running neck and neck, you just need to automatically go with the young guy. Saban came out on purpose at media day a couple Sundays ago. On purpose, he came out and said, that's not how we do it here. Mentioning the quarterback situation, we're going to play the guy that we think gives us the best chance. I mean, it's not anything about being tied and playing the young guy. Saban has never played a true freshman quarterback in his entire coaching career. He's never done it. Now, that's not to say that, that Blake Barnett won't get some reps this year. I don't really uh, I, I don't really subscribe to the automatic red shirt theory for Blake anymore. But all these people that are suggesting, after Saban said he wasn't going to do it, that if they were tied, he'd go with the younger guy, apparently they got, they've got comprehension issues. Because they keep bringing it up. They keep well, bringing it up. I, I mean, either they're just ADD or they're just stupid. Well, the only thing is, though, Carrie, there is the possibility that Barnett could take the job from, and whether that's the first game or the second, yeah, or the during third. the season, Drew, I admit that during the season he could take it from me. Yeah, there's no doubt because but the I just discussion think... that we've been having is who's going to start the Wisconsin game, the first series of the game, and I'm telling you, I'll, I'll say it for Big C to hear it because the rest of the listeners heard it last hour. I am telling y'all, unless he slaps somebody named Saban uh, of the family Saban or has an amputation, it's going to be Jake Coker that first snap. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, that very well could happen. He's going to have to perform, though. He has not yet, and that's the disturbing part. And he, then, it's his job to lose, and he hasn't lost it yet. He continues to be at the front of the quarterback line every healthy practice. Well, and we'll, and we'll see. But he didn't perform well, and – Alec Morris is definitely putting heat on him. I think Barnett's put some heat on him. We'll see how they perform on Saturday and the rest of this week. Because, But I will uh, say this. I'll, I'll go on record. I no longer think Blake Barnett will redshirt. But uh, I just think uh, I think Jay Coker, quarterbacking is from the neck up, and I think the other two candidates that I think the job is going to come down to. And uh, don't get me wrong, you know, Saban, he, he complimented Cooper Bateman today. But with Blake Barnett and, and Alec Morris, I think they're better. They're both going to be better from the neck up. Do what? He he complimented Cooper Bateman because Cooper had a moment or two in the scrimmage, and because he needs Cooper Bateman there all this year and all next year to hold for Adam Griffith. Yeah, well, we'll see. But I think, uh, you know, we'll see what I, it's just going to be fascinating to watch Big C, no doubt, uh, on Saturday to see how it all plays out. All right, let me ask y'all about Cam Sims. I know the state. Was he out at practice today from what I heard on the television? Yeah, he was out there, but yeah, he was going through drills a little bit, Big C, but he's got a long way to go. He he, he tore his ACL and his LCL. He had a Dante Hightower-type injury. He'll redshirt this year. Uh, he, he, he won't be needed if these guys step up. That's why Richard Mullaney was brought in. They need to go slow with Cam and, and have him back on in the spring. 
What about um, what about Bo Scarborough? I know he had major surgery. They, do they really expect him to be back in October or not? Yes, he would have been back. George game. Yeah, he would have been back if he hadn't got suspended. He would have been back by, I think, by Ole Miss. But yeah, yeah. He's, he's made a lot of comp. He's made a lot of progress. He's going to play against Georgia this week. We don't know how much, but he's going to play. Well, hey, Big Z, man, we really appreciate it. We really appreciate the call, man. Always a uh, big part of this program, and uh, uh, we uh, we we look forward to hearing from you again next week, brother. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. I'll be calling on next Tuesday night, and I'll talk to you tomorrow, Kerry. Thank y'all. Okay. Bye bye. Actually, it'll be Friday, <laughs> not till Friday. I know, but but uh, we, we got a uh, We got another call. Bye, Felicia. We got another caller on hold, though. Uh, the man I like to call the Smoothie King. His name is Stephen M. Smith from Touchdown Alabama Magazine, and we are so glad to have Stephen M. calling back into BAMS Radio. Stephen, we hadn't talked to you since New Year's Eve when Thomas and I were in New Orleans. How is it going, Stephen M.? Going well, man. Grinding, fellas. Grinding. I, I appreciate the Smoothie King Club. I'm going to love. Okay. No doubt. No doubt, man. What, what's on your mind tonight? Uh, I, I guess the main thing that's on my mind, and I know you guys did a lot of uh, dive into the quarterback situation, and as I look at the running backs right now, when I look at Damian Harris and Ronnie Clark, I see two guys that can really take pressure not just off Derrick Henry, but also Kenyon Drake and allow him to be that that slot, flanker, vertical threat receiver that Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban know he can be. I, I'm very impressed with what I'm seeing out of uh, Damian Harris in practice, usually number two in position, drifts behind Derrick Henry, and also Ronnie Clark in, in the practices that I've been out there. Clark has been either third or fourth in drills. So really like what I'm seeing out of Clark and Damian Harris. What do you guys think? Well, I think, you know, Stephen M., that Ronnie Clark is still coming back from the Achilles. Uh, I do think he will transition uh, to an H-back, full-back type, uh, jack-of-all-trades, can run the ball, block, catch, like a Jalston Fowler. Um, you know, I think he, he probably lost a little bit of athleticism with the injury, but uh, and a lot of times with those kind of things, it takes a whole year to uh, recover. I think he'll play special teams this year, but I think his role will be expanding because you're going to see a guy like Ty Flournoy-Smith graduate. Uh, you'll see Michael Nicewander graduate. And Ronnie is more athletic than both those guys. So I think Ronnie will, uh, in his career at Alabama, kind of take on that role. But I think it's very important uh, that Damian Harris continue his uh, his maturation both mentally and physically. He's going to be counted on this year. There, you know, Kenyon Drake will run the football, but he's going to be very important, as you said, as a slot guy. He will be put out wide, uh, return kickoffs. So he's going to be a jack-of-all-trades, David Palmer-type kid, kid this year. So they're going to need Damian Harris. They're going to need, uh, you know, Derrick Henry. Derrick Henry is going to be, in my opinion, a 20-carry-per-game guy. Then you're going to need the, the touches from Damian Harris. And I think Bo Scarborough, by the time he comes back in October, uh, can help be a closer. He and Damian Harris can help close teams out now that you're going to get, they're going to get a steady dose of Derrick Henry throughout the game. But in the fourth quarter, I think you're going to see the two young guys uh, come on there and, and play roles. But I do think, you know, Ronnie Clark is going to have a future at Alabama. I just think his, 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 uh, he's going to be ever-evolving and developing because I think uh, he's shown some flashes, but I think he, you got to understand it usually takes a, a full year to get over 
an Achilles-type injury. But I love his athleticism and what he could bring to a combo back position. But I think his role will be bigger in 2016. Right now you're going to see it rotate uh, as far as the backfield around the four we mentioned, uh, Derek King-Henry, uh, Kenyon Drake, and obviously Damian Harris and uh, Bo Scarborough. And I guess my final question would be, when you look at the linebacker position, Dylan Lee is such a diverse player. Defensive coordinator Kirby Smart on fan day just praised him on his ability to you know, not just play outside, he can play inside, he can play strong side, just that wild caveman-like mentality and also a stalwart on special teams. But in the past couple of practices, I've seen him work more so beside Reggie Ragland and Reuben Foster. Do you see more Dylan inside this season, or will he still remain outside? Well, Stephen, I'll take that one because I got a chance to talk to Dylan on fan day uh, that you referenced. Uh, Dylan's role right now on the team when they're in the base defense, which they only use against running teams such as Arkansas or LSU, uh, but when they're in the base defense, his role is to be starting at the Sam linebacker, outside linebacker. But bear in mind that Alabama plays more nickel and dime than anything else. And when they're in those two defenses, you'll see Dylan inside a lot because he has the ability to, to cover a tight end and occasionally blitz. He is a, a man of many positions, as Kirby called him. Uh, but when you, particularly in the dime, you'll see him inside, uh, but uh, he will be – outside uh, in the base defense when they play against the rushing teams. I want to jump in on this as well. Um, the thing about Dylan Lee is he's going to be a key guy to add versatility to the Alabama defense. I, I think, Stephen, you can, I, I think you agree, and I, I, I feel confident saying Drew and I, Drew and Kerry, excuse me, agree with me when saying this Alabama defense has a chance to be special. But the question becomes, what? How does Alabama seamlessly transition from a base defense to a nickel defense without having to substitute? That's really the thing in college football now because you can't substitute very often. So what you're seeing in fall camp with Dylan Lee is he's playing certain positions in certain defenses, and then he's shifting around as Alabama shifts its personnel scheme. What that does is – if for some reason you run into a guy like let's use let's use an extreme example like a Rob Gronkowski for the Patriots, there's nobody that Alabama is going to be playing. But I want to use this to as an example. Rob Gronkowski is an elite blocker. He's also an elite run. He's also an elite pass catcher. Well, in order to handle him, you need an elite level linebacker or safety that can take on blocks and not get destroyed in the run game, as well as keep him somewhat in check when he goes out on a pat on, on a and a, and a uh, wide receiver pattern excuse me so Dylan Lee can do some of those things and that's what Alabama needs you cannot base your defense off of having the best subs for whatever package anymore because of the tendency for offenses to stay on the field in their same personnel, but because their personnel is, you know, either t a mix of tight ends, linebackers, running backs, they can transform from two wide receivers, two tight ends, and a running back or whatever. Then they can split a, wide, a tight end out, and you go three wide a three-wide receiver look. That's the same personnel grouping for the offense, but you have to defend it differently as a defense, and you can't sub. That's Dylan Lee's value to this Alabama defense, and – 
I really think it can't be understated going into this very tough year. Well, there you have it. <laughs> <Hand> over. <laughs> Sorry, guys. That was your turn now, Stephen. <laughs> what else I you mean, got, Stephen? I apologize. I mean, I, I agree. I, I got a chance to talk to with Denzel Duvall during uh, Monday's player interviews. Duvall basically called Dylan and me a swing guy, somebody that can do a little bit of everything and is very a, a viable asset to this football team. And, and when I look at the secondary as of right now, Minka Fitzpatrick is an individual. I know Thomas knows a lot about this, but Minka Fitzpatrick is a guy that's playing numerous positions in that secondary. When I see Alabama line up in nickel, he's the, the corner opposite Cyrus Jones. When I see them going to the dime package, he's either in money or he's either in star. And I look at Tony Brown and Marlon Humphrey, and it's Minka that's actually pushing both of them. How much time does Minka see this season as a freshman? I think he starts the first game opposite Cyrus in whatever defense they're in. He's at that great of a camp. He's moved past Tony Brown, in my opinion. I, I agree with Kerry, uh, Stephen. Uh, I think uh, Minka is special. I think uh, you saw it throughout the recruiting process. It's why Florida State uh, tried, you know, everything to get him to flip Notre Dame, uh, everybody in the country. Uh, he's a truly elite talent, and it's made more amazing his progress because he's had excellent mental retention. And I think Maurice Smith said it best today. He said, Minka's different because when he makes a bad play, he has no emotion. Uh, unlike most freshmen, he just bounces right back. Uh, he had the two picks in the scrimmage and the three pass breakups, as Fish said. He was tremendous uh, in that scrimmage, and he's been tremendous throughout fall camp. And, it's uh, and again, it's stunning because he didn't go through uh, spring football. A guy that did go through spring football is Ronnie Harrison. And having Geno and uh, Eddie Jackson back, they're kind of mentoring him in the sense of where to be on that field because Ronnie's got the size. You can't coach that. And he's got the quickness and the ability to be a hard hitter. He's going to be one of the all-time great safeties to come through Alabama. But when they moved Eddie over there, and apparently they're not going to suspend Geno for the first game like we thought there might be a possibility, it does appear that the two starting safeties will be Eddie Jackson and Geno Smith. But I think we can rest assured that Ronnie Harrison will see some quality playing time. And, Stephen, I expect Ronnie to be a starter on most, if not all, of Alabama's special teams. I have that same ordeal. I mean, as I mentioned, you cannot coach six foot three, two hundred twenty pounds. I mean, you can diagram a play on the chalkboard, have them learn it, but you can't coach elite size. You just can't do it. As my high school coach used to say, we don't know much about him, but we know this: he'll hit you. <laughs> well, guys, I appreciate you so much for having me on tonight. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate you calling the call. Thank you, Stephen. That's uh, Stephen M. Smith, a co-conspirator with Thomas Watts on Touchdown Alabama Magazine. We've had a chance to watch Stephen grow as a writer and as a and as a broadcaster. He does a podcast every now and then, and we appreciate him calling in on bands. We hope he'll call more often. The man we'd love to call the Smoothie King, Stephen M. Smith. And we wish Stephen uh, the best in his future endeavors. I know he's got a lot of interviews lined up, and uh, you know he's a recent Bama graduate, and we are very happy to have Stephen as a caller on our show. Drew, uh, before we close, and I know we still got uh, 21 minutes, but I wanted to touch a little more on something I mentioned at the top of the show, which was that the SEC tonight, live on their network, uh, released everybody's conference basketball schedule. 
And uh, Alabama's got a fairly tough schedule. They they open the league slate at Ole Miss January 7th on ESPNU. Then they come home to take on Kentucky and South Carolina. And then they play six of the next ten on the road. Uh, road games at Vandy the 16th of January and at Auburn. And then uh, at South Carolina, at Mississippi State, at Florida, February 13th, at LSU, at Kentucky. So they got to play Kentucky twice. That sucks. And at Georgia. Uh, on one of the ESPNs. The home schedule, though, uh, also includes LSU, uh, Tennessee on January 26th, Missouri February 6th, Texas A&M February 10th, Mississippi State, and Auburn and Arkansas. So uh, a pretty tough schedule. And I'll tell you what, that first SEC road game and first SEC game period for Avery Johnson in Oxford, Mississippi, at the TAD on January 7th on ESPNU, Drew, that's going to be huge because that's going to set the tone for the entire SEC season. Well, well, and I believe it's going to be at the new TAD. Uh, I think they're opening their new arena at Ole Miss, and it'll be the first game, so there'll be a lot of excitement for Ole Miss, and Alabama hadn't had a lot of success there in the past, but uh, we will see. Uh, you know, it looks as though they won't have Kobe Eubanks, and you were kind of hoping that they would have that young guy to help with the perimeter shooting, but it doesn't look like that's going to be possible, but – I'm sure Avery Johnson and staff are, are going to, you know, coach these guys up and we'll see. But, yeah, it's a tough slate. Uh, the SEC has got a lot of new young or new uh, elite coaching talent with Ben Howland at Mississippi State and then obviously uh, Coach Johnson at Alabama and, and then obviously Rick Barnes at Tennessee. So it's going to be interesting to follow. And and uh, I think uh, Andy Kennedy's established himself at Ole Miss. They went to the NCAA tournament last year, won the playing game against BYU, and uh, they've got some guys back, but hey, you know, buckle your seatbelt, as Coach Avery would say, and we will see how they do. But yeah, it's a tough opener, no doubt about it. So back to football. Uh, tweet by a Scout.com cohort of mine, retweeted by John Garcia, friend of the show. Chad Simmons says, "Quote: Going with his heart." Raquan Davis says about his final decision. Still Alabama right now. More Thursday, which is tomorrow, on Scout. So. All along, people have said, uh, particularly John Garcia, that if somebody was going to flip, uh, he now <laughs> I guess he should have called Shy Carter because he's already flipped. But he kept saying if somebody was going to flip, it would be Raekwon Davis. But for now, at least, it sounds like that, that Raekwon is still solid to the tie. I guess we'll see how that shakes out, Drew. Oh, yeah. and I mean, there's a lot of Meridian uh, influence uh, that uh, that uh, is in the corner of the Mississippi State Bulldogs around that program and staff, and that's why a lot of people have talked about Raekwon perhaps ending up in Starkville. But I think Alabama and Bo Davis have done a really good job, along with the help of Kendall Holt-Jones, of holding on to Raekwon. They, as usual, Nick Saban helped everybody else out by evaluating Raekwon as an elite player, even though he was barely playing for Meridian at the time and he had not made a lot of plays on film. But they saw him at camp at their camp, and they did a good job of getting on him first and offering him. And then everyone else comes in and and decides to join the fray as usual because Saban outworks them. But you know, uh, most of the time, Coach Saban his track record's good about holding on to guys. And you hate that Cheyenne Carter, uh, you know, has flipped, and it's looking like he'll either take some Dunlop tires or he could end up out in Athens, Georgia. Uh, and LSU's still involved, but I think he is going to leave the state, so he'll either end up out there at Dunlop or, or he might, uh, you know, uh, matriculate to play for Coach Pruitt. But I think Alabama has plenty of time to replace him, and I'm not so sure that there's not going to be more attrition from Alabama's class, and 
And I think the obvious one is another safety from Louisiana named Josh Perry. Well, that's interesting. Josh Perry claiming a few days ago that he was still solid to Alabama, but you always worry about the out-of-state guys, especially when they commit that early. It's just uh, I don't really think the word commitment holds a whole lot of meaning these days. It's more like uh, my team of the week is Alabama. Yeah, and I think a lot of them – like uh, the media attention they get when they get an offer from Alabama and get heavy interest because it helps them garner scholarship offers from other schools. And so Alabama's got in on a lot of great players, Kerry. Uh, you know, there's been some consternation because Michael Carter from Jackson, Georgia, there's some people now crystal balling him to Georgia. Sounds like Georgia may have made a move, but trust me, this is the year of the defensive linemen and uh, Alabama. If you, if, 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 you know, if Michael Carter ends up staying in state, Hopefully they're going to turn up the heat on Dexter Lawrence from Wake Forest, North Carolina, because he may be an even better player. I'm ready for him to turn up the heat on Kevin Ridley. Uh, we'll see. I mean, that's another guy to keep your eye on, no doubt about it. Something else I wanted to, to touch on, uh, former Alabama player Julio Jones is absolutely about to get paid. Uh I think he's about to get one of the richest contracts in NFL history uh, because Atlanta wants to sign him for the duration of his career. And I turned on the game. I'm usually not a big fan of exhibition football because oh, yeah, of course. he's the starters, but a couple of series. But the first series of the game, Julio Jones was absolutely dominant against the Tennessee Titans, oh, yeah. Huntsville's, Huntsville's adopted team for some reason. But anyway, he went down the field and just uh, ended up scoring after about his fourth catch. And then they pulled him after, I think, the next series – but I was watching later in the game, Drew, and I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I'm getting to a point here. Uh, when Tennessee got down on the goal line, Jawson Fowler came in and threw some fantastic blocks, at the second of which ended up as a touchdown for the Titans. Atlanta ended up winning the game, but it was because Atlanta's scrubs were better than – well, Atlanta's starters were clearly better. When they pulled the starters, Atlanta was dominating. But Atlanta's scrubs were able to hold Tennessee off. But Jostin threw some outstanding blocks for the Titans in that game. I was wondering, though, because he was competing with uh, with Connor Neighbors. Is Neighbors still with Tennessee? He broke his arm about three weeks ago. Okay. Um, had surgery, and within two weeks, uh, a week after, you know, having the procedure, uh, he's, uh, as I was told uh, by his father today, he, he's been rehabbing already for two weeks. Uh, they did waive him, but they want him to come back in October and try to win a spot on the taxi squad. But, again, he broke his arm uh, in practice, and that's why uh, he wasn't out there. And I know he played for LSU, but I'll always consider Connor to be an honorary Bama because his dad and his brother both played there, and his brother's still on staff in Tuscaloosa. A lot of people may not realize that, that Wesley Neighbors, son of Wes and former Alabama player and grandson of Billy, is currently a member of Nick Saban's staff, Drew. Oh yeah, they are. It's something that they should know. I mean, he's he played at Bama. He was a a good special teams player. Uh, he had an, a leg, a lower leg injury that you know derailed his career uh, at the end. But he trans. He had already wanted to be going to. He had already been thinking about going into coaching. And when this when the injury happened, and they and they allowed him to finish his career as a kind of a student assistant. You know, Coach Bobby Williams, uh, you know, told uh, Wesley, you're so intelligent, you've got such a great football mind, you need to let me go talk to Coach Saban, and, and you need to start coaching with us. And that started that. He was a GA for a good while. Uh, last year was part, uh, it was it was a paid analyst. 
is now, and he did such a good job last year working with Kirby Smart and Lance Thompson. He's now working with Kirby and Tosh Lupoy. Uh, he, 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 you know, he, he, he secured a raise. Uh, he, you know, he almost went to the NFL as a quality control coach, had some opportunities that didn't quite materialize, but he decided uh, to stay in Tuscaloosa. Uh, they showed him, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were appreciative of the job he did. He has a bright future, uh, I think, in, in, in the years. With Coach Saban, he likes young coaches to start, like Jeremy Pruitt did, from the, from the ground up and work their way up in his program and his, in his organization. I think that's what Wesley's doing. And I think in the future you could definitely see him when Coach Bobby Williams retires it wouldn't shock me at all if he took over because he was Bobby Williams' right-hand man a lot of times as a graduate assistant. The, the best moment, of course, is Georgia when they faked the punt and scored a touchdown and led to a touchdown in the SEC Championship game in 2012. Wesley was trying to alert Coach Williams because he'd watched so much film that, you know, the up back came, you know, came checked into the game without his gloves on, so he knew something was up. But uh, he's a film rat. He's a brilliant guy, and I think – uh, you could see him being Alabama's special teams coach, last tight ends coach in the future, especially if he goes off to the NFL and gains some experience and comes back. But even if he stays at Alabama, Coach Williams has been doing this a long time, but if he decides to retire or moves into administration, which has been rumored for a while, Wesley Neighbors could be the next one up, and I think he has a bright future in coaching. That's a great point and a great story. And uh, one part of the story that you didn't tell, but it needs to be told, uh, when Wesley noticed that, he tried to get Coach Williams to call a timeout, call timeout. Mm-hmm. out of fear for his job. Because he said, I will never do that. I've never done that in all 20, 20-something years of coaching. I will never do it. And he summarily got cussed out by Nick Saban because the fake worked. Yeah, and he should have. Okay, yeah. uh, swinging back into current times, the uh, technical wizards at Blog Talk Radio have uh, not done their job today, so we're not Shocked. able to uh, – we're not able to bring you the George Whitfield interview. We had a, a 24-minute interview that Drew DeArmond did with George Whitfield, Blake Barnett's quarterback coach. And uh, we were going to play it for you tonight, but we're unable to process it due to some well, uh, bugs. Yeah, the, the the servers are screwy. I've been on hold with their, their help desk for a while. What we can do, uh, I know if you're listening live, this is not going to do you any good, but after uh, after we close out the show, I'll tack it on to the end of the podcast and just you know listen to the end of the outro. And uh, I won't even I won't submit that to Blog Talk Radio either. So that'll be just for people that go through our website and a little extra carrot for them. Bamsradio.com. And I, what I wanted to do, and, and I appreciate you doing that, Thomas, because our listeners do deserve to hear that. But Drew, could you kind of uh, for the live listeners, could you kind of summarize? that conversation, and particularly one point that Coach Whitfield made about Blake's youth. Oh, yeah, he, he talked about Blake, and, he, and he's been with him. You know, he, he got a chance to help coach him with Trent Dilfer in the Elite 11 because he, he works very closely with that, uh, you know, with with Trent. And, you know, and Coach Whitfield is one of the foremost quarterback gurus in the country. Uh, he, he, you know, he's, he's worked with Cam Newton. He's worked with Johnny Manziel. He's worked with Andrew Luck, uh, Jameis Winston. He's trained a lot of these guys, but he told me on the show, and it made my jaw drop, but he said, Blake Barnett, simply put, is the best 18-year-old quarterback I've ever been around. He just, he says he's, you know, and he has the right mindset, and his opinion is, I asked him, could Blake Barnett start Alabama as a true freshman? He said, yes, he could, but he feels like the best thing for his career would be to redshirt, because as he said, Cam redshirted, Johnny redshirted. 
Jameis, red-shirted Andrew Luck. He said, but he could play. He said, but the beautiful part about Blake Barnett is, Blake Barnett told him, he goes, Coach, I could have gone to Oregon. They would have played me for sure this year. They probably wouldn't have taken the transfer from Eastern Washington. But he's like, but I wanted to go to Alabama and, you know, and then play for Lane Kiffin and Nick Saban. And if they want to redshirt me, that's fine. In other words, he said he's got the right mindset. He will wait his turn, but he also wants to be great. And, you know, he talked about his mental toughness, talked about how no matter what they were doing, whether it was SEAL training, uh, military-type training at the Elite 11, whatever competition they had, each day Blake Barnett woke up and said, I'm going to win this. He said he has a competitive drive he's not seen. He has a short memory and a great work ethic, and he has the drive to be great. And he just thinks, you know, he said the – he said the thing that struck him about Blake Barnett is he wanted to compete. Uh, he, he went to Alabama, and as he said, he wanted to play for the biggest, baddest coach in Nick Saban and the biggest, baddest league in the shark tank known as the SEC and test himself. And uh, he, he really believes he has a bright future and that he, you know, and, and he has a great teacher in Lane Kiffin that can bring him along. And he said, he said, what two, two, what are two, who, who can you have as your teachers? Who better than Nick Saban and Lane Kiffin? And he, he talked about his mental approach and uh, and his work ethic, and uh, and just he just really believes uh, because he can extend plays with his legs, and because of his skill set and his in his uh, combination of arm strength. And I disagree with William Barger here somewhat. Blake Barnett has plenty of arm strength. You, you guys, he's been on Bams Radio multiple times and told us he could throw the ball 70 to 75 yards. The arm strength is, you know, is not a factor. And then he's got the accuracy, uh, and he can extend plays with his legs. He's a, he, he's a dual-threat guy, but he's really more comfortable in the pocket and being in a pro-style offense, but he can just do so many different things. And I think a big thing that I took from the interview was his leadership ability because you have to be a leader – uh, to win the Elite 11 and want to step up and want to win every drill, which is what he wanted to do. He led his team not just in the Elite 11 seven-on-seven to a championship. He did it in the Rivals five-star challenge as well. Then he won the quarterback challenge uh, at the Under Armour game. So he's done it again and again and again, his, and then he squad won in the Under Armour game. Uh, and, he, you know, he didn't put up eye-popping numbers, but they won that. And uh, and he's just every for every time he's had he's been on a big stage surrounded by big time players on television and whatnot. He wants to win the game. He wants to step on your throat, and he and he wants to rise to the occasion. And I think that's what set him apart. And what Nick Saban said on signing day about you know kids that we talked to both at the Under Armour game that we signed and that we didn't sign said he's as good a leader as we've ever been around. Now he's green right now, and he's trying to learn. But I'll get, you know I'll tell everyone another excellent tidbit for our listeners. He is so locked in in trying to win the quarterback job for the Alabama Crimson Tide right now. He's not even talking to his parents. That's pretty wild. Is he spending a lot of time, extra time, time that's not required in the film room? Oh, I'm sure he is. I mean, you don't, you you never know because you're not with him. But I mean, I'm sure he's grinding. The work part. He, I'll I'll say. You know, I think you guys probably remember this. We had Jeff Steinberg on the show, his high school coach, and he. The one thing he said about him was he loves the work part. He loves watching film. He loves lifting weights. 
It's part of it that he want. It's part of his DNA. He said the truly great players want to put in the work, and that's what Blake Barnett wants to do. It's why I'm so high on him. I, he's already the most advanced quarterback I've ever seen under Saban. Uh, A.J. McCarron was great, but he's already ahead of A.J. physically, and he's already ahead of him mentally at the same spot. A.J., by about midseason, was the backup quarterback in 2009 during his redshirt year, and I believe Barnett is ahead of that. He's already been more impressive at the same point than A.J. was, and A.J. was a great football player. I am not taking anything away from A.J. McCarron, who beat out Phillip Sims, who, by the way, threw a touchdown pass for the Arizona Cardinals in the NFL. The kid still had NFL talent. He just didn't have – his mental makeup wasn't wasn't good enough to be the quarterback at Alabama. That's what separated A.J. McCarron and Phillip Sims. And that's, in my opinion, what is going to separate Blake Barnett eventually with the rest of these quarterbacks. When he becomes comfortable mentally, his talent level is superior to everyone on that football team at the position. And in my opinion – I'll go ahead and say it. He may not take the first snap against Wisconsin, though I still don't think that's out of the question. But, again, by midseason, I would not be shocked if Blake Barnett were the starting quarterback for the Alabama Crimson Tide. I think uh, I wanted him to redshirt, but I think the only way that happens is if Braxton Miller comes in. Uh, If he does redshirt this year, that does mean that someone like Jake Coker or Alec Morris has stepped up and performed well, and that's great for the football team. But I'm just not sure that the consistency level for either one of those two guys is going to be there. And I think Blake Barnett, his talent level will eventually be uh, so uh, superior to those other young guys or to the other guys he's competing with that I think he is going to take the reins at quarterback. And with his elite talent level and his intangibles and the, the total package, he will be the future of Alabama football. And, you know, A.J. McCarron was a great football player at Alabama and really kind of set set the, the, the table for uh, Blake Barnett to come in to Alabama. But I think Blake Barnett is going to set it up for the future like Peyton Manning did for Tennessee. He set up Philip Fuller recruiting elite quarterbacks from that point forward. Nick Saban will recruit elite quarterbacks from the point forward now with Blake Barnett and the success I predict he has at the capstone. Well, uh, I've I've had a, I've been able to listen to the interview and actually wrote a transcript for Drew. And one thing yes, he didn't he did. say, mm-hmm. uh, Whitfield even went so far as to say, you know, it's going to be a golden age for Alabama with this young man. Uh, I, did, I yeah. like uh, listen to the after after the outro. I'll just tack the in, interview on afterward. But you know, when you listen to it. George Whitfield has worked with Ben Roethlisberger, the Ben Roethlisbergers and the Cam Newtons and the Jameis Winstons. You know, his client list is a who's who of, of quarterbacks, NFL and college. And Whitfield seemed almost awestruck with some of his statements. So I have to say I'm excited about seeing where the young man goes. But before we close the show, and I know we're getting near 10, so we might go a couple minutes over, I wanted to ask both of y'all something that came out over the past 36 hours. What was your reaction to having now passed away the NFL Hall of Fame senior committee decides Ken Stabler is worthy of Hall of Fame consideration? I think it's great. Personally, me, I want to give my opinion first. Personally, it's great, but it should have happened a few years ago. Now it's just kind of cheap. What do y'all think? Well, I'll say it first, and then I'll let Kerry go, but it's about damn time. I mean, he's been a finalist before, but politics kept him out. I think it's pathetic that it took him passing away to do this, but those that tried to, especially the ignorant media 
a lot of them on the East Coast are a bunch of hacks and clowns with agendas who said that, you know, he was surrounded by great players. It still takes a great quarterback to, to help great players, to direct great players to win. You cannot just roll out an average quarterback and win Super Bowls and go, I think at one time, Snake, his record as a, as a, as a starting quarterback for the Raiders was something like 53-15, and 15, okay? That takes a great player. It doesn't take, oh, he was surrounded by Hall of Famers. Well, then you would have to say the same thing about Joe Montana. You'd have to say the same thing about Steve Young, who took over for Montana, and Terry Bradshaw, and, and, and on and on. Even, even Russell Wilson, who, in my opinion, is, is a really good player, but they're kind of overhyping him. Uh, but, again, a great, I think a great quarterback, is, he's essential to win football games. You have to have a great quarterback to be, to be great over a long period of time. And Snake was great for a decade. The Raiders, I know the Steelers were in the 70s, and the Miami Dolphins, the Dallas Cowboys, but the Raiders came through one of the best decades in NFL history as far as great teams and talent, and they were always there, and they were hated. I was not a Raiders fan, but you had to respect what Snake did, and I think it was cheapened by some people in the media who had a, uh, an agenda that was, quite frankly, garbage. I was a little late to the party. It was about a month before he passed away that I came around on him deserving to be in the Hall of Fame. But Arnold and Stats and Drew and a few other people, I finally changed my mind about it about a month before Kenny died. I did not like the fact that he threw so many more interceptions than he did touchdowns. But Joe Namath's ratio was even worse, and he's been in the Hall of Fame forever. So Kenny does deserve it. I'm glad that the Veterans Committee nominated him. Better late than never. I'm happy for him and his family. Uh, his kids, uh, you know, his fans, from Foley to Alabama to Oakland, he was always a winner. He was a winner in Houston. He drug his career out a little too long in New Orleans, but, hey, if somebody's wanting to pay you to play ball, you let them pay you. I'm very happy that he appears to be on the cusp of making it. I hope they get the job done. They waited uh, far too late with Derek Thomas. Uh, that was that was also ridiculous, but they waited even later with Kenny Stabler. I'm glad that it looks like they're finally going to do it. It'll be a happy moment for his fans from Foley to Bama to Oakland and all other points that he played. So extremely happy and extremely happy that we had such a good show tonight. Uh, I want to thank William Redfish Barger for joining us. And uh, I want to thank Big C for calling in. And uh, I want to thank my co-hosts, Drew DeArmond and Thomas Watts. And uh, on that note, we're going to close out another edition of Bama's Radio, a member of the Bama Sports Radio family. I'm your co-host, Perry Clark of BamaMag.com. Thanking you for joining us. And if you listen to the podcast, stay tuned because Thomas is going to tack on the George Whitfield interview with Woody Almond. Good night, everyone, and roll tide. It's must-hear stuff, everyone. Tune in, listen to George Whitfield, roll tide. Coach Whitfield, how are you today? I'm good, Drew. I appreciate that intro. I'm glad to be on here with you. Yeah, no doubt, Coach. And uh, in this area of the, the state of Alabama, of course, uh, there's a the college football is a, is a, is at a fever pitch, and uh, you've had a chance to work with some of the best quarterbacks uh, in in the country uh, on every level. 
uh, for the past decade, as I said, at Whitfield Athletics. And obviously, uh, first of all, with the Auburn fans, you had a chance to work with Cam Newton uh, the year that he won the Heisman Trophy, and he's been able to, uh, you know, go to and make such a smooth transition to the NFL. Uh, he, he's really been uh, one of the best players, uh, that really in the last uh, 15 years in college football. And, all, and, 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 and and ever since that time, I think everyone in this state has known who you were and, and has been learning more and more about what you do. But for those that may not be, kind of explain Whitfield Athletics and your staff and, and what your mission statement is. Uh, well, Whitfield Athletics is a, is a quarterback school. It's an academy. Uh, we, we train and work with, with quarterbacks of all levels, uh, of all ages. Our youngest are probably second, third grade. And, and yes, in the wintertime, we get a chance to work with the bigger guys that are trying to make that jump to the NFL. So we have a team down here in Southern California of about, you know, four or five guys and, and a really cool little group of interns. And, uh, it, it really, truly a school. You know, there, there, we we don't wear whistles. We're not we're not barking at anybody. It is, uh, you know, we we kind of look at look at it like it's like a like a junior version of Ocean's Eleven. There's a project. We all got to come together, bring your different uh, specialties, and and try to get that project done. So that's how we kind of approach it. And uh, you know, we've we've had an unbelievable time. You know, these last few years. Yeah, absolutely, and obviously, uh, when you got a chance to work with Cam Newton, uh, he's he's a super superb talent. Someone that uh, in his one year at college football basically set the sport on its ear, uh, and he's been able to become a superstar on the college level. And uh, just, I guess, first of all, when you got a chance to work with him for the Auburn fans out there, what what was the thing that you what what that struck you about Cam and his skill set, and that made him so special? Uh, well, my, I remember my father calling probably about a weekend of working with Cam. Cam came out here uh, the day after his national championship, maybe two or three days after the national championship game against Oregon. He lands out here, first time we ever met or talked, and, and his, his family's here with him, and he was ready to go. And I remember my dad calling, former high school coach in Maslin, Ohio, and, and dad said, what, what's your impressions? And I told him, I said, Dad, if this dude did anything else, I said, imagine if he was a bank teller. He'd be employee of the month every month. <laughs> like every single thing this guy does, he has to be like far and away exceptional. And it's not to prove to you anything. It's just how he is. You know, he doesn't come out. He doesn't come to training, you know, with his shoes untied, let alone late or this or that like everything about him you know his pilot light you know he was a furnace is huge and i said yeah he's gonna have no problem you know yeah we're gonna have to come around on some mechanical things we may have to you know get him you know acclimated to this point or that point but in terms of him being a self-guided dude i I said this this guy's gonna be phenomenal i can see why you know they kind of ran the table there at auburn uh, and that was one of the things Cam was most proud of. Once we did go through training, and I did notice this pilot light, we get to Auburn for the pro day, and he takes me on like a two-day tour. We're looking at this, we're looking at that. We go into the locker room, and there's a huge banner 
in the Auburn locker room. I'm sure it's still probably there. And it says, undefeated and undisputed national champs. And he walked up to it, and he points at it, and he goes, not too many people can say that. You can just tell, you know, the pride. Very simple for Cam. Do everything that you can do. And and for a quarterback, it comes down to winning. It doesn't come down to statistics. It doesn't come down to the, the swag or the flair or any of that. And that's when people had a chance to watch him as a Panther. You saw, I think, his sophomore year in the NFL, he's frustrated. It was all boiling over because they weren't getting the job done as a team. They weren't winning. And he didn't care about the record-breaking numbers or the highlights. This guy is only going to be uh, you know, satisfied when they come off the, the field in a dominant fashion. And I think that's, that's just going to drive him you know, right on through, you know, a Hall of Fame career. Yeah, and, and, and now to switch gears to Alabama, uh, Cam Newton has, you know, set them up for success. They're, they've had a lot of uh, success in their program since he left that time. He kind of set the stage for them. Uh, and now at the University of Alabama, they have they had A.J. McCarron, who had a great career uh, from 2009, even though he redshirted through 2013, a five-year run. But, but they have another young quarterback, in my opinion, that has a chance to even eclipse what he accomplished. And that's saying a lot. But I think uh, potentially he has the elite skill set to finally take the quarterback position under Nick Saban, which has been probably the only position he's had at Alabama where he hasn't had that first-round draft pick or a truly elite prospect in Blake Barnett of Corona, California. And I know you've had a chance to work with him twice this summer, Coach. What is your thoughts on Blake and, and the potential he may have? Well, Drew, simply put, um, Blake Barnett is the best 18-year-old quarterback I've ever been around. And I've had a chance to see him, you know, and he's a little younger at the Elite 11. And, you know, then he was, you know, he was better than most of his, you know, compadres there at that competition, but he wasn't far and away better. Then we get a chance to see him this offseason, get a chance to see him up closer. He's bigger. He's north of six foot four. I didn't know how athletic he was, uh, you know, until you start to watch him. And then he said, hey, Oregon offered me, and Oregon would have played me this year. Oregon coaching staff basically saw Blake in the same athletic mode as Marcus Mariota. And then you get a chance to watch him work and train. And, you know, we made a little refinement here or there, and, and you watch that ball jump out of his hand. And I thought, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a long reign for Alabama coming down the pipe because this guy is, you know, uh, so completely well-rounded as a quarterback at such a young age. Yeah, there's things he's going to continue to build on and work on, but his skill set is so well-rounded uh, at such an early age. It's, it's going to be, you know, an overwhelming ride for them. And obviously, uh, he's a young kid. He's uh, he he enrolled early, went through the spring, and is now uh, in his first fall camp at Alabama. And Nick Saban has never played a true freshman quarterback. In your mind, uh, could he start this season? Because I saw him practice Sunday for an entire practice, and in my in my opinion, there's five guys competing for the job at Alabama this year, Coach. And 
I thought he was, and it was a consensus from the, the people that I watched the practice with, that he was the best player on the field that day at the quarterback position. But do you believe that he's far enough along uh, in his process that he could start at the university as a true freshman? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think I don't think I'm qualified to answer that as your your Alabama coaching staff would know better. Decision making, how's he doing? Processing you know, the information, where he is, playbook. From a talent perspective, and from a could he go out and play perspective? Yes, he could play as a true freshman. An awful lot of programs lead an awful lot of programs, but you know they're at Alabama. And Blake and I talked about this, and this is why I have so much respect for him. He signed up to go play for Coach Saban and Alabama, and more so than that, the incredible expectations down there. So you get there, and if he redshirts this year, great. If he winds up you know, on the field in some capacity and he gets a chance to contribute, uh, great. But he did not sign up for that, the automatic guarantee of, hey, Am I playing here? Am I playing here this year as a freshman? Okay, I'll sign if that's the case. That's you know that you, you got to kind of look at those guys and think to yourself, this this guy must be the ultra competitor. If you know you have places, you know college football places who can wind up in the playoffs potentially, who are saying our doors are wide open, come in here and play right away, and this kid decides to come down to the Shark Tank of the SEC go to the biggest, baddest school with the biggest, baddest coach and say, listen, I'm going to put myself in this program and the process, the timing of it, and when you clear me to go out here and do my thing, I'll be ready to go. Like, that just says, you know, just to me speaks volumes about what type of uh, what type of competitor he is. Could he play this year as a freshman? I would hope that he redshirts right. personally. Um, I'm sure most coaches do. Uh, I just think it gives these guys so much. Is he capable of going out there and playing? Oh, yeah, I, I think he's capable. You know, getting the ball all over the field, pulling the ball down, making plays. Uh, it's going to be a maturation process, though. You get, you get rocked by a defensive end from Tennessee or a backer from LSU. Those guys tend to kind of uh, they'll shell shock some, some quarterbacks and then they'll expedite the process of others. But you know, Luck red-shirted, Manziel red-shirted, Cam red-shirted, a lot of those kids, Jameis red-shirted. Mm-hmm. It just does so much for your uh, maturity to get at least a chance to see from the bullpen, you know, what these guys do, especially in this league. And I love what you and Coach Delfer and your staff do with the Elite 11. It's I watched uh, the the the, uh, the journey that Blake went on last year, uh, the behind the scenes, the live coverage, and of course the behind the scenes, uh, the the video, the uh, movie that was made. I thought it was spectacular, and I I love what you guys do every year. But I, I wanted to ask you about that. What did what did Blake show you during his t- time last year in, in winning the competition, and how much has he improved in your mind since that point? Well, in the Elite Eleven, we we really look at two things. Uh, competitiveness and then consistency because they're all coming in there with different sets of tools so you don't have to be you know this you know, you know this big overwhelming killer like Blake you can be a kind of or Jameis for that matter you know Jameis was an MVP our first year there in Elite 11 some of these guys come in at six foot like Sean White there at Alabama I mean at Auburn 
Sorry, Auburn fans. <laughs> Sean White there at, at uh, you know, he was lighting it up, and he wins the MVP. You know, just a consummate passer, distributor, great timing, ball was out quick. Uh, and you see, you know, other kids. Uh, Ashanti Willard comes in there from Orlando, Florida. He's in there, uh, lights it up. He goes to UCLA. He had a big arm. Uh, he overpowered people, et cetera, et cetera. Blake, Blake was just on everyone's throat competitively. Every opportunity, he jumped on him. And it didn't matter if it was an accuracy competition or a seven on or, you know, something akin to like a conditioning drill or, or we have drills sometimes that we do stuff with the U.S. Navy SEALs. And uh, just every single thing, you could tell he woke up in the morning saying, I'm winning this. I'm winning this. And then he was consistent. And then once you kind of watch that, and then when you get into the seven irons, which eventually takes over the, uh, the, the ebb and flow of the whole competition, he could just master and command everything. Concepts, reads, you know, just understanding defenses, driving his team down, putting them in positions to win. And they won it, therefore he won it. But so he did that that year. You know, very consistent. This past season, I got a chance to see him, and you know, he he we he made the adjustment. You know, he was open to it. Just kind of made a slight adjustment with the grip and a little bit of a change with his release point uh, to get the ball out even quicker. You know, to have a big arm, but to have some point in your mechanics that kind of offsets it or gives a little bit of that advantage back is not a good thing. So he, you know, he was willing and open, and we just experimented on a whole bunch of different things. And now it's like an automatic, you know, his throwing motion is more like an automatic, you know, uh, hate to say weapon, but it is. And, uh, and then now that ball comes out, now it's no telling. Because to have a big arm and a quick release, that's the ultimate combo you can have as a quarterback. So he is, uh, you know, he, he is overwhelmingly the best 18-year-old, you know, I've ever been around. And, and we've, you know, I've been around all those guys at Elite 11, and some guys have grown and hit their stride later, and, but I have certainly never been around somebody this talented, this complete at, at this young of age. That's, that's strong, Coach. And obviously – uh, with you, Trent Dilfer, and you've been doing your Whitfield Athletics since 2004, the quarterback in position has uh, just has evolved so quickly, and all these kids are so much more advanced than they used to be uh, with the uh, explosion of these seven-on-seven tournaments and everything. But uh, the one criticism, I guess, that there's been has been the with the advent of a lot of spread offenses, uh, these quarterbacks, including Blake in high school, don't spend a lot of time under center. And so they have a transition to make, especially when they reach the NFL level. Do you think that's overblown as far as their quarterbacking, or or do you think that's a legitimate concern? That, and that as, as a teacher of the position yourself, do you recommend that uh, these kids? How do you think? Do you think they should be under center more in, on, on the younger levels? I mean, how how what do you, what is your thoughts on the evolution of quarterbacking? Uh, well, there's a couple things you touched on, Drew, and I, I agree with a lot of them. Uh, one. These guys are further along than quarterbacks of other generations. Seven-on-seven seven is a big contributor of that advancement. Uh, no question. 
every time a kid goes back to throw a pass at seven on seven, there's a decision that has to be made, one. Then they have to make an execution of the play, two. So I love what's happening around the country with seven on, especially down in a place like Texas, which has just jumped on the rest of the country because their seven-on-sevens are built into state championships. So you're playing for your high school in the summertime, and they put a state championship award on top of that. So that's what, I mean, what a huge uh, you know, onus to go out there and play for. So you have that in seven-on. You can play that as a youngster, and you're going to come out, and you don't have to worry about getting hit or rocked or offensive linemen. So that's one. Two, they got 24-hour access. Man, imagine when you and I, if you and I were eight years old, ten years old, and you've got 24-hour networks, and you can get football games and, and, and just constant interaction with the game live all day on your tablet, on your phone. I mean, you can, be, you can walk around the grocery store with your mom, and instead of tossing a football around like I would have been doing <laughs> as an eight-year-old tagging behind my mom in the grocery cart, you can just be watching an iPad and watch Aaron Rodgers the entire time you're in the produce section. I mean, just like imagine that. And I think, lastly, video games. These guys are now playing video games, and that's where a lot of, I don't think people really believe this or not, but a lot of the introductions of coverages, of defenses, of play concepts, and not that the kids are even playing it to you know, that high level. It's not like... Coach Saban playing against Coach Malzahn, and they understand everything the game. But to see a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old go back and choose, you know, this man coverage to beat this really talented receiver that they're playing with on the video game, I mean, that's just at least pulling you forward. It's having you think. It's having you scheme and scheme to the best, you know, circumstances you can get into. I think all those things are truly helping the game advance. To your second part of your question, is this hurting us, Drew? The, the seven on, the lack of footwork, the shotgun. In a way, yes, it is, and it is. It we we had a chance to see that this year, from 2003 till la- up till last year. I think it was an average of 12 quarterbacks drafted every year in the draft. 12, so a dozen guys get their name called. This past year, seven. And, I don't, and that's not due to a lack of talent. And you saw some tremendous players. Uh, Bryce Petty, mm-hmm. we had a chance to work with, go in the fourth round. Brett Hungley goes down after him in the fifth round, and those guys are certified players. But it became a referendum on system. It truly became a referendum on system. Those guys who were able to play under center, make progressive reads, uh, break huddles, call plays, et cetera, that may sound you know, a little bit underwhelming in a barbershop when you say, call huddles, I mean, break huddles and call plays. So many of these kids walk to the line of scrimmage. Team is already lined up in front of them. They look to the sideline. Somebody else called the play from the sideline. They look back. The play, therefore, is already called. The center snaps it as soon as you tell them you're safe to snap it. And they're off and they play. They haven't really had a chance to have any of those responsibilities that you would classically see in a system, let alone the footwork. So dropping, resetting yourself, sliding up in the pocket, making adjustments on the fly, and having the comfort level of having all these different bodies around you in a closed setting. I mean, 
yeah, those things truly affect us. They, they affect the youngster as they try to make the transition. They affect the teams. They go and try to make the evaluation. How long will it take this guy to get this? Uh, I don't think it so much affects the game as the game will carry on, but there's going to be some adjustments that are going to have to be made. And whether it's in some of those transition points, high school to college or college to pro, uh, that process is going to become even more vital as that's the, really the only quiet time these guys can kind of make that change. Or it's going to take some more creativity in coaching staff, people more like Chip Kelly or like what Coach Harbaugh did in San Francisco with uh, Kaepernick or what the Seahawks do with Russell Wilson. Uh, it's going to take more creativity like that. And as you say that, then it's also going to take more dynamic quarterbacks to go in and do those sorts of things. So it's going to be a very interesting process. But, uh, you know, obviously the NFL has, but it, you know, they have their prerequisites, so to speak, about what they want from the quarterback position. And college coaches and the college systems are finding ways to take advantage of tempo and spacing and that type of play to win on Saturdays. And, yeah, it's going to be on the kid more than ever to have to make that transition. Succeed on Saturdays. The success you have on Saturdays is going to be a different type of, you know, path to train that over to get successful on Sundays. It is possible. And, you know, Auburn's Cam Newton is, uh, I think, he's the poster child for that. But uh, the rest of these guys are going to have to continue to work and, uh, you know, work hard to make that happen. But it is doable. If you can play, you can play. No doubt. And Blake Barnett will be in an advantage uh, working with a, in a pro-style system at Alabama, but with a varied skill set and, the, as you said, in the athletic ability uh, that he has and the mobility he, uh, as long as uh, he can, he stays healthy and continues to work. As you said, he's worked with Lane Kiffin there now and Nick Saban. Uh, it looks like he has a very, very bright future, Coach. No question. Imagine being, you know, and not to make an ad for Alabama football and recruiting. Imagine sitting in that building, walking around that building, and those are your two professors, Coach Saban, with all the experience. And all the, you know, the curriculum and the, and the success that he's had, and then Coach Kiffin, who's been around some incredible quarterbacks, going all the way back to Matt Leiner, uh, and all the knowledge he brings to the table, and those are the two that are going to mold you for the next four or five years. I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, it's almost unfair. But that situation he's in, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited for him and see how this plays out over the next couple of years. Well, no doubt. Well, Coach, it's been an honor to have you on uh, Talking Ball today, and thank you for taking time uh, to be with us. And everyone, uh, check it out. Check him out on Twitter, at uh, George Whitfield, George Whitfield Jr., at George Whitfield. And, of course, Whitfield Athletics, the preeminent quarterback school, A-T-H-L-E-T-I-X.com. And, Coach, we really appreciate it. We hope to speak with you again soon down the road, but thank you for joining Talking Ball today. Drew Armand, thank you very much for having me. Let me know. I'd love to be back. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, that's Coach George Whitfield uh, from Whitfield Athletics, out based out in San Diego, California, uh, on with uh, uh, me today, Drew DeArmond, the host of Talking Ball. And uh, we were really honored uh, that he took the time to join us. And uh, we take stay with us. We'll be back here on 97.7 The Zone in Huntsville, Alabama in just a few moments.